Welcome to episode four of Miniatures Monthly at the Great and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston, and as ever, I am joined by Tom Senior. Hello. Hi, Tom. We've had another one of those uh, months where everything we're going to talk about happened the day before we record. I the think pod. Games Workshop are actually working on our schedule. Uh, this is clearly what must be happening because yeah. so much news occurs before before we kind of go to press. We were on a last on Tuesday the... of the month schedule, and Games Workshop are on a announce everything. Two right. days before the like last two days before the last two days of the month mm. schedule. So yeah, so we just got back from Warhammer Fest in Coventry. We went up to spend the day on the Sunday of the show, uh, and so loads of the things that we've got to talk about today uh, will stem out from that. I think rather than try and talk about everything we saw at the show up front, we might as well try and feed it into everything else we've been doing this month. Yes. Because it's, you know the things we played there dominate the news this month like mm. the new edition of 40k and i think you know you and i both got a lot out of looking at the golden demon entries when it comes to our painting and things sure, like that. Yeah. so we will we will cover off the normal things we cover in the in the podcast but it might be a little bit of a looser so just you know discussion as we kind of move from topic to topic because in a month <coughs> where you know the thing that is defined this month for us has been the reveal of eighth edition warhammer 40,000 and the regular drip feed of new things that have mm. just been coming since basically a week after we recorded the last episode um culminating in us actually finally having played it now um you know that's i guess probably the place to start but actually maybe maybe even before that it'd be good to talk about our experience of the show more generally hmm. how did it shake out for you uh i really enjoyed it and i came away feeling massively inspired and very happy to be kind of doing this whole thing. Mm. You know, it just felt like a, a kind of goodwill towards the entire hobby from the gaming side through to the astonishing Golden Demon stuff that was on display. And the, just the incredible dioramas they had there that they've, you know, trucked down from uh, Nottingham. Uh, yeah. And they've just kind of just really imaginative, really exciting, like creatively exciting stuff just to look at and see and really good access to designers and they're really chatty and friendly, the Games Workshop people who are there. Um, so yeah, I came away invigorated. Mm. And we were only there for like five hours. Yeah, it was interesting because we could probably you probably do a loop of the show in terms of going and seeing the Golden Demon stuff and seeing the dioramas and looking at the design stations and having a wander through the Golden Demon and um, not the Golden Demon, but the Forge World stuff. It's probably an hour worth of walking and looking. Yeah, and actually, but actually, sort of five hours felt like about right to kind of soak that stuff up. Managed to do two demo games of the new edition of Forty K, have a wander around the other stuff. Mm. Um, but I think, yeah, I kind of came away from it thinking I would, I was, I think we got the right amount out of it, but at the same time I would consider going back for a weekend and just having a much more chilled out weekend, yeah. like, yeah. you know, spending more time just hanging out basically. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, uh, I'd definitely take some models and do some gaming because they're, uh, you see a lot about the tournaments, but there's actually quite a lot of space, uh, outside of the tournament area for you to just put sound and some models on some mats yeah. and actually start rolling some dice. And there are smaller, like kill team tourney, tourneys and stuff, running on each day. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, like, it was um, it was it was nice because I went to Games Day, you know, the predecessor to this event. Yeah. Um, as a teenager, like the last one I went to would have been like two thousand and one, mm. two thousand. So like you know, a, a long time ago, long time ago now. And I remember that being quite um, one of those sort of convention experiences where everything is super packed and yeah. quite intimidating. Mm. 
and I think I think maybe I've changed more than events have <laughs> in that I'm bigger now and have disposable income <laughs> and I'm not intimidated by crowds of adults in metal t-shirts right? <laughs> <laughs> in the way that maybe I was when I was 12 but um still like there's i found it very comfortable like it's sort of the mm. i think maybe the quite intense hobby focus of the event because i didn't do a tournament obviously i guess if you're there to play competitive 40k competitive blood ball it is quite an intense event because mm. it's two days of, of of play i was glad we didn't take we didn't do that we explained our reasons i think in the last episode yeah we did um so was it six games five six games yeah four day four games on the first day and that's your entire day that's you know and, and you don't get to see any of the cool stuff happening outside so it felt mm. like you're choosing the tournament or the conference yeah so I'm glad we went the way we did. Yeah, I think, um, and the sort of, there was, it was sort of, I think it was so focused on going and just looking at cool models and dioramas. Mm. And that's sort of like very much in my, and not, not, I'm certainly not unique in this, but that's very much my end of enjoying the hobby mm. necessarily. Like I'm more interested in that than anything else yeah. when it comes down to it. So I love seeing um, just the, Heavy metal armies and the army yeah. painter armies because you see a lot of standard standards uh, levels of standard painting coming mm. out of games workshop so they're like army painter guys who just paint huge armies extremely quickly they just do it bare minimum um and they they look great uh, but they, they it's really interesting to see those models and then see the next level up which is the heavy metal which is the stuff they photograph yeah and actually seeing that in person and seeing kind of how vivid and vibrant mm. they make those color schemes that they pop on camera uh, it's just a, it took so much out. If you're a painter, you could take so much out of just looking at them. Like it sounds yeah. silly to say to someone, oh, I, "I walked around for five hours and looked at things," and you know that was a really intellectual experience. But it is, if you yeah, think. it's interesting. So yeah, because I, I think inevitably our discussion about this event is going to be divided between like obviously the, the the big standout stuff, the obvious stuff, like we saw these new models, we played with them, we yes. saw you know all of the stuff we're going to talk about today, but also like a lot of the most valuable things was simply like. It, it's such a, it does sound super well it's like experiencing things about those models mm. like about the way they're painted about the way they're presented about the way the dioramas shook out mm. like i can stare at you know the best of those dioramas for ages just kind of appreciating how the composition's been done how the color palettes have been picked mm. and and that kind of thing we should probably dive into the meat of it though because yes new 40k is 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 the thing mm. right now um we when we got there the first thing we did was basically go and queue for a game and when we to the middle of the afternoon we went back played again um and i guess we were playing with a reduced version of what will be in the new starter set which is primaris marines mm. so the new space marines the new taller space marines that uh we talked about in the last episode actually when they've been leaked this you know the, the photos that had gone out about of leggy space marines yep they're a thing um uh multiple units of them against the new uh 40k nurgle stuff so the plague marines, uh, pox walkers, which are basically zombies, mm. and the sort of Nurgle chaos lord, who's a hulking guy in Terminator armor with an axe who hits extremely hard. Terrifying. Um, kind of trying to figure out where to start. I guess we should start with how it plays, and neither of us are in a, necessarily in a position to talk about it from a forty k perspective. Mm. But it's as the more and more they've revealed about this game, I think we both have that sense going into it. It's really interesting playing it as an AOS player i think yeah so much has traveled across from, from one system to the other yeah and yet it's been carried across and tweaked in really interesting ways that makes it kind of fascinating as an aos player um basic things like uh units that have charged go first is uh in mm. new 40k whereas in age of sigma uh you act, take it turns to activate yeah um so in 40k you 
the charges go first, then you go into the taking your turns to activate phase. Mm. So it makes charging uh, much more of an important decision. It gives a, a, an advantage to the charging unit, which you would imagine they would have as charging, you know. Yeah, and that's balanced against Overwatch. Yes. Whereas if you charge into a ranged unit, they get to make a um, a shooting attack uh, with their entire unit. However, the uh, to hit value, the, the ballistic skill value of that attack is set to six. So yeah. you have to roll a six to hit with it because mm. it's a sort of a reaction shot, not a... But that can still be yeah, especially and interesting. Yeah, especially if you've got like a, a huge rapid fire unit, like the new floating gun platforms uh, in Terminator armor that the Primaris have. Because um, they've got like, yeah, they roll 18, there's three of them, and they're rolling 18 shots. So if you charge them, you expect to get 18 shots and, you know, three on, hits on average. On sixes, bit, exactly. Yeah. So they're going to do some damage. And, and it, not only does that feel really fluffy, fluffy it feels really correct. Um, yeah. When I imagine that scenario in my mind's eye, it also does balance against that charging uh, mechanic. But if I thought that was probably the most interesting change they've made with AOS. Yeah, I think th- there are a few, like, there are a few others, like, um, having this sort of stipulation that you can't shoot into combat but pistols can right um which is makes a lot of sense gives pistols a role rather mm. than just being bad guns basically mm. um there's loads of stuff like that like i think it's interesting coming at it from point of view of like the sort of philosophical differences between the systems because age of sigmar is ultimately a game about heroic fantasy and sort of magic people doing magic things and i don't just mean that in terms of the literal wizards that are in that game every character is kind of larger than life yeah um, particularly in the new range, you know, mm. there are still legacy models from the old world that are more low fantasy kind of, I am just a man with a bow. Uh, there's a reason why uh, AOS translates really well into skirmish scenario format yeah. and translates really well into Silver Tower. It's that you could pick up any model from any range and that it stands alone as an individual hero. Yeah. Uh, so it's got that larger in life. Everything's a hero in an age of Yes, exactly. And so, and so the thing it's simulating is not it's not a uh, medieval warfare game, no. which is what I think why why it alienated parts of the original fantasy yeah, fan, sure. you know, fan base. That uh, you know, fantasy was at a crossroads where it was either going to still try and be a fantasy game, sorry, still try and be a sort of historical war game that also had magic elements, or it was just going to go magic, and it went magic basically. Yeah, and so a lot of the things in in AOS are sort of simulate like things like mortal wounds, which I think New Forty K also has, mm. but like mortal wounds are a perfect example of like it's all it's not even like. It's basically plot damage. It's, you know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, it sort of represents the, you know, mortal wounds kind of represent the spectacle of what's going on rather than the, rather than try and simulate the Hmm. sort of actual material effects of like, you have moved this distance and, you know, thrown a rock weighing this much. So it does this damage based on this kind of armor. Yeah. Um, a lot of old 40k's complexity came from that level of simulation granularity. And I think what impresses me about new 40k is the way it still has it, it is more of a simulation than AOS is. It it goes an extra mile in order to simulate how different weapons behave against different types of armor yeah, and sure. that kind of thing mm. in a way that AOS both doesn't and doesn't need to. Mm. Uh, because a sword is a sword is a sword is a sword at the end of the day. Mm. What you're simulating in AOS is the magic man wielding it. Uh, whereas in 40k, I think you said this yesterday, like mm. it's about trained people using gear and the gear defines them as much as the training yeah, does. Absolutely, yeah. So there's, um, what I was, what I liked about it is as we played, I got a sense of how all the different weapons behaved, which helped that mind's eye picture. But what I liked a lot was how straightforward that was. I was really worried. Like my least favorite thing in the world is looking things up on a table. Yeah, definitely. And actually I was quite impressed by, how quickly we were able to just run it for ourselves after mm. we'd been given a little primer on the basics. Yeah, absolutely. It, 
there are a lot of weapon profiles. That's where the kind of complexity of the game seems to be mm. for the new player, I found. Uh, especially, if, for example, uh, the Space Marine uh, Primaris Captain has a Power Fist and a Power Sword. And he has five attacks and he could choose, you know, you could take two with a sword and three with a fist or fist five times. <laughs> yeah, indeed. As he is wont to do. Uh, and that level, of, they have different profiles which have different armor modification values and hit values and other effects. Uh, so that's kind of where you're getting that complexity from. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting change from AOS. But still, it resolves quickly because the data sheet's good, I think. You can yeah. glance at the data sheet and see exactly what you need to roll. Um, stuff like weapon skill, just being, if it's weapon skill, if you've got WS2, you just roll two plus. Yeah. You're not, you're not looking up an, an opponent's weapon skill and then going to, to a table to do it. And the other thing they've done is they've made the strength to toughness uh, relationship much, much easier. So essentially, if your strength is higher than the enemy's toughness, it's a three plus roll. If your strength is more than double the enemy's toughness, it's a two plus roll. Uh, otherwise, if you've got parity, it's four, it's four plus. plus. Yeah. And then, you know, there's a sliding scale there that is you could just look at the two numbers and know ex- yeah. instantly what role you need to And make. mathematically, it's super interesting. Yes. What it does to the balance of the game. So like, um, like for the, the sort of space marine and space marine equivalents, um, that we were playing with, like toughness four was the kind of average value. And that's pretty tough. That means that you have to have uh, strength five or above, which is again above average. Uh, it's a, it's a rating out of ten. You have to have strength five or above, mm. which felt above average to get a benefit to get that to get to, to be wounding them on a three plus rather than a four plus. Yeah. Um, and then you'd have to be because it's in order to get that two plus wound roll, you need to be more than double. Mm. So you need to be strength nine or ten, which is like the upper echelons of the game. Yeah. So basically, it means that the only only the strongest weapons and the most powerful things in the game are going to be getting easy wound rolls against space marines, which is as it should be. Yes. Um. But then you got the really interesting things like the, um, you know, like the Nurgle Lord and, and I think the Space Marine Captain at uh, Toughness 5, where that suddenly becomes a really interesting number. And interesting numbers might be the most boring thing in, in Wargaming, but it means that you can never, in a, in a out of 10 system, you can never be more than double, um, five without bonuses, which means that, like, that is a sort of an interesting threshold to have hit. It means that you're never going to get a two up wound against those characters. Yeah. And I think those kinds of, I really like that because it creates interesting granularity and meaningful characterful differences between units on the board. But at the same time, you know, I'm terrified about looking up. I don't want to be looking up strength versus toughest values on a big table to figure out my hit to hit value. But, you know, all they had for each demo station was like a laminated cart, a laminated piece of paper that had the space marine units on one side and the Nurgle units on the other side. And, I just held that for most of the game and I had to double check some numbers because I didn't, hadn't memorized them. But every time it was just, I could just tell you instantly what you were rolling. Yeah. Cause it's like, okay, what's your weapon? So oh, it's a six. Okay. And you're shooting it as strength, toughness four. Mm. So that's three up done. And then it justifies having that relationship. Like, so you can say, why not just have it be a three plus to wound? Um, but then having this system allows you to do, uh, include weapons that like, that you can overcharge to increase your strength. Mm. So in certain circumstances, you want to overcharge a las cannon, uh, to, uh, double its strength and, then, and yeah. then a plasma again, sorry, uh, to double its strength and then get a better roll against a, a bit, a tough target, uh, which comes with a risk because when you overcharge and rolls ones, yeah. as I may have done a lot, yeah. uh, <laughs> the prim- primaris remains marine will explode to just be incinerated by their weapon yeah uh, and that relation that interesting interaction can't exist in uh the aos system where it's just three three plus to wound yeah on anything and that's really like so that um space marine captain the choice between his two weapons is a bit niche mm. in some ways so basically the choice is you have a sword um which is always 
uh, it's a particular, I think it's always strength five or something. I think it's always his strength. Mm. Um, but he has a weapon skill of two. So it hits on a two and it always does two damage. So it's, it's kind of flat. Mm. The power fist doubles his strength to eight, I think. Um, minus one to hit. So it hits on a three rather than two because of his, his, his weapon skill and it does D three damage. But what's really interesting is, um, you are on the fly kind of making interesting decisions about how you want to weight the dice in your favor based mm. on the decisions you make about the weapon. So, um, you know, in the experience, it was like, if you're going for, a, if you're, go, if you're trying to wound a target with high toughness, you go for the power fist mm. because even though your hit roll is weaker, you'll get a better wound roll because you, you know, you got strength eight at that point versus toughness five, you're getting a three up. Mm. Whereas, um, I think it's actually strength four for the sword. So whereas if you go for the sword against that, you're rolling two up to hit, but then you're five up to wound because you there's the worse odds. Yeah, yeah, worse odds. Um, but against uh, and also you kind of want that D three damage because it has that potential to yeah. do loads. Yeah. But against a horde of en- uh, enemies, as we found out, and we'll talk through those games, I guess. Um, you want the two up to hit and the three up to wound because of the relative strength values, and that's the strength versus toughness, and that's I think um maybe a little bit heady, but like in the moment, it's a really interesting strategic decision yeah. how you split those attacks mm-hmm. and. Um, again, despite the fact I really like the system and I think it's a meaningful advance on what AOS does, I actually don't think it's necessarily the best fit for AOS either. I agree. Yeah. Like, I, I think it's, it definitely fits both the fiction 40k and also, uh, the sort of the pace of the game. Whereas, um, as soon as AOS gets that level of complexity, I think something of the kind of the immediacy of the combat is lost, particularly when you're thinking about like Conan and the Barbarian style hyper magic heroes wailing on each other mm. like can you imagine the thing where you're trying to figure out what kind of hoof attack to use on yeah, your steed yeah. before you charge mm. like mm. um i just don't think it's a good fit but it really worked in in this context yeah it's very much an in-between state it's, it's very much like it is like ios but with that extra layer of depth if you want it mm. uh, so it's always if you wanted to pick, pick a system and just wanted a, a like a, a ios is super fast and super nice um and it is uh interesting strategic game but 40k is going to be more so i think you yeah know, it's going to be more of a war gamers game for sir for certain just because of those decisions that you have to make mm. and it was interesting to see how specialized the units were as well in that starter box um so the nurgle lord was just pure combat and he moves yeah. very slowly forwards and it, it's a really strong mental image of this because he's this hulking amazing model for him mm. hulking brute this enormous axe and this noxious fumes coming off him and he's just plodding forwards towards the primaris as they Poor Try fire and gun into, him down, yeah. Uh, and as soon and like he, as soon as he gets to combat, he absolutely wrecks stuff with the mm. axe. It's, it's just a monstrous figure. And then you've got like the Primaris plasma gun unit who just do one thing really, really well, really good ranged. Um, but I mean, they're still space marines; they're still tough. But you don't want them in in combat. The, the roles felt very well defined mm. between the it was, units. It's interesting because um, I mean, yeah, maybe we should go with those games pan out because our first game uh, in a first for this podcast, I won. <laughs> But I won in a way that probably wasn't that much fun for either of us because mm. it, I mean, it was a, a total dicing on my part. I'd had amazing <laughs> it dice. It was extraordinary. <laughs> um, and B, um, I think it was because of the way the demos have been set up. I yeah. mean, like, uh, credit to GW, they got a lot of people through these demo units and they had one person managing mm-hmm. two different games trying to teach the rules to people. Um, and they were sort of setting the games up sort of in the middle and not with the full selection of units that are in that starter box. Mm. Um, and so that one began with the Nurgle Lord in combat with the Space Marine ca- Captain, uh, the unit of of sort of Nurgle Plague Marines kind of moving up, and the new sort of Nurgle Plague Drone, which looks, it's not the same as Plague Drones from 
the demon side, which it's are corrupted. The, the bees, basically. Oh, yes. The bad wasps. Yes. Um, this is like, uh, it looks like one of the recent Forge World Mechanicum units. Like yeah. a kind of uh, twin rotor hover drone, but very Nurglified, beautiful fucking Fantastic model. Like we should, we should talk about models separately because yeah, that's going to yeah. be the whole different thing. Um, and yeah, the first thing is like, so that thing like automatically hits, I think, based on the number of attacks it gets. So you roll like, you get D6 attacks and that's how many hits you get and you get straight to wounds. So the first roll of the game, I rolled like something like six hits straight away, mm. and then all the all into your plasma plasma guns. I, I'd won the I'd won the initiative roll, and just like the the play the play drone immediately killed five like four plasma marines by itself. Mm. Then the my shooting from my plague marines killed the others, so I'd wiped up one of your units straight away, and then. The Nurgle Lord did like four wounds to your six wound captain. Yeah. And he brought in the, um, uh, Incessor Marines, which are the flying Terminators weapon platforms mm. things. Um, but it was like way too late. It's almost not worth dwelling on that game because it was just like, yeah, I just, it flash. was just like what happens when you roll just a bucket of sixes is like stuff dies. Yeah. yeah. The, when we went back later in the day, the second game we had was way more interesting yeah so maybe we're going through slower although the start was fucking hilarious <laughs> so um, <laughs> <Yeah>, it was <laughs> so in that game uh we mixed up the units a little bit so you had the full unit of uh i've completely forgotten what they call hell blasters the basically marines with plasma cannons yeah plasma guns the captain and a unit of Incessors? I've gotten them mixed up with the other one. The tactical marines. The standard the new tactical, tactical marines. The new yeah. Primaris tactical marines. Yes. Uh, and the captain. And I had the Nurgle Lord, the, uh, plague marines, and the pox walkers, but not the drone, not the flying thing. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And, um, and we didn't start with them in combat. It's obviously, a, it was an extremely small board, but we started at opposite ends of the field. Yeah. As you would expect. Mm. Um, you won the roll off, didn't you? believe so yes what happened next because it was fucking funny <laughs> uh so i ordered my uh plasma gun marines to shoot i can't remember what i ordered them to shoot was it a general i think it was the plague marines oh that would make sense um so i ordered them to to do that and then i decided to overcharge which gives you uh plus strength and plus damage right that's right so it takes it up to two damage and i think it turns four plus into a three plus um to win them so not a bad idea mm. uh but of course if you roll a one one explodes and i think i've rapid fired i'm not sure if you can rapid fire i think we might roll too many dice yes i think so uh, i think we they still only got one shot but uh, of all the dice i've rolled i rolled four ones <laughs> the four of my primaris the the new breed of space marines the bursarius call us fresh from ten, the forges of mars ten thousand years developing you know changing the emperor's gene code to produce the, these slightly taller men um and yeah they they <laughs> weapons four of them blew up melted uh, melted them uh which was obviously hilarious <laughs> um pretty much like it was it, really fun because i was really excited to play with the primary space marines love them new models uh and the whole fantasy of the space marines just feels more like stronger and more, more vivid to me now uh so it's hilarious to actually encounter them the first time and start rolling some dice and watch them all just die in droves like yeah. self-inflicted half of the time <laughs> um i mean i think we'll get to this but like um you know, when we got the demo game in the first game and I had a plasma gun as well and it was like, you know, the guy's like, do you want to overcharge it? And I said, yes. <laughs> and I think maybe the AOS player in us was like, of course you take the extra. You just <laughs> go for question. It. And actually, no, that is, a, that is a strategic decision. Yeah. Like you should really think about the numbers involved before you choose to overcharge your plasma gun because a, a, a one in six chance to simply lose the, <laughs> the firer <laughs> is is not you don't don't fuck around with that. No, like, no. <laughs> Especially is it I bet those guys can be quite expensive points wise in the game, eventually. Yeah. 
So <laughs> I wonder how many points I lost so, there. We don't so, know yet. I mean, because the stupid thing is as well, like you, we hadn't been able to find the fifth model when we were setting up the game. Oh yeah, we'd that's only right. given you four of them, yeah. and they all blow up. And then we saw that he'd actually been sort of like tucked away at the corner of the board and, and lost. So we say, just set him up now mm. and then Let's fire pretend. with him. He didn't fire. So um, we'd resolve the rest of those wounds. Um, and then, but the rest of your shooting, I don't think did very much. Because one of the things Nurgle has is um, you have, a, in addition to, actually it was worth explaining, save. So every unit has a save, uh, which can be affected by AP armor piercing, which works exactly like Rend in Age of Sigma. So you can, you know, weapons with, with, AP reduce the save of the, the target, which makes sense, mm-hmm. as in they penetrate armor. Um, and then um, some units, mostly the leaders seemingly, have invulnerable saves, which in this uh, is really, I love this system. I think it's super cool. Mm. If you have an invulnerable save, you choose which of your saves you use. Your invulnerable save can never be changed. So, um, so for example, the Nurgle Lord has a two-up save, which means that wandering into like bolt pistol fire where they don't have any kind of AP, he doesn't die. He just walks doesn't at care. them. Yeah. He just doesn't give a shit. He just walks at them mm. and they bounce off, which is perfect for the fiction. Yeah, it's great. However, if you shoot him with a, uh, like a las cannon or something, which has huge, or a plasma gun that has huge rend, or sorry, AP, mm. then he has a four up invulnerable save. So it basically, your invulnerable save puts a cap on how much armor piercing yeah. you can suffer. Which is perfect for heroes. They've done yeah. a lot to protect heroes in the game because, of yeah. course, you can't, um, you can't shoot a hero if they're behind somebody else you can shoot basically uh which is an you can screen your heroes with other units essentially mm. uh which didn't come in tactical use for our tiny game but it's obviously hugely important and that yeah. along with the vulnerable saves uh will serve to protect heroes from the huge amounts of shooting in the game which is something aos might benefit from a little bit some sort I think of so, adjustment yeah. in that way um, and then the Nurgle units specifically have a special rule called disgustingly resilient, which mm. sort of simulates the fact that sometimes you shoot a Nurgle dude in the head and his head explodes, but it just keeps coming because yeah. he's, he's so poorly, he's still alive. <laughs> so <ill. laughs> um, and so that means that whenever Nurgle units take a wound, they also, they have a five up save against just all wounds yes. forever. Which is incidentally, um, the deathless minions save for, that exists for death. So that's another thing that's kind of come across from, from yeah, AOS. Yeah. But again, very thematic. And again, yes. it means that like you are not go- well hypothetically, you are not going to shoot a Nurgle Lord to death because mm. if he if you don't have rend, sorry AP. I do prefer the word rend. Mm. I think than AP. Um, if you don't have AP on your weapon, he is going to be saving on a two up and then a five up against everything you do, mm. which is statistically likely to not slow yeah. him down very much. Um. So, uh, because four of your uh, plasma guys exploded. Um, I, I then moved up and did my shooting and I'm pretty sure my, my, uh, plague marine bolter guns killed the last guy. Mm. However, I then fired, uh, no, they didn't because I, I fired into your captain. I don't think I did anything because mm. the reason I say this is because I, one of my plague marines had a plasma gun as well and he exploded because <laughs> yeah. I remember very clearly no one who owns a plasma <laughs> weapon survived. died to anything other than their own plasma yeah, weapon really in true. that game because yeah. I, yeah, I, I think it was on the second turn your final uh, remaining did, plasma did, marine blew also up. blew yeah, himself up we learned important lesson about plasma guns <laughs> don't, over, don't overcharge them yeah, just don't overcharge them it's fine they're quite good <laughs> they're quite good normally yeah <laughs> Um, I think you overcharge them for the shot that will kill the thing that will turn the game. Yeah. Right? Like you overcharge them for the this clutch thing, right? Or you've got to really got to take down the dreadnought, and you need that AP. Yeah. yeah. Not just because, because <laughs> you can <laughs> press the big red button, it makes it better. Yeah. Don't do that. No, don't press um, the button. So then we ended up in this, this situation, which was super cool, where like your plasma marines are, 
plasma marines had gone. Mm. Uh, my Nurgle Lord was just stomping towards you. He only moves four inches, and then he has an AOS-style charge roll, yes. which I kept failing, to be fair. Did keep failing really the charge. Did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Plague Marines move up, and my Proxwalkers, which are also very slow, just sort of shambling towards you. Mm. Um, and then over the course of, I think, the next two turns, because they were fast turns, because we're not playing very many models... Mm. Um, you're shooting from your kind of, you, you kept running away basically. So you're, yeah, this, we have this image of these bravely tactically retreating. Yeah. But like the Primarch Marine is sort of like walking backwards slowly, mm. shooting into this oncoming kind of Nurgle horde. Yeah. That shooting killed all of my Plague Marines. Mm. Um, and then as my kind of Nurgle Lord closed in, your captain charged into the Poxwalkers, right? That's right. So, uh, I think I got a round of shooting into the Poxwalkers and then the captain charged into finish them off and then the did yeah and then but then making the right decision to use the sword instead because Mm. it's better against weaker things just murdered them like five of them in one attack it was amazing actually i I love the way the heroes worked in the game because they both were really thematic and you know the in your mind's eye you'd expect a space marine captain in the new primaris armor Mm. with a huge power fist to and a sword to go in and just kill everything in a massive blaze of violence which is what happened yeah so he wiped out all of the pox walkers um but my Nurgle did succeed in the charge on him mm. and then killed him. I, I think actually my, um, uh, I charged my captain. Oh no, you did. I right. did. So I, I know, knowing how terrifying he was, I thought the thing that the space Marine captain would do would be to charge the Nurgle, uh, Lord and to p- protect his, his fire line. Yeah. And to go in and take it on with his power fist, uh, which he did. And he got butchered. <laughs> He's got straight up butchered. <laughs> I think he, he did like two wounds. Yeah. He, had and he got cut in half. Scuffed him and got, yeah. yeah, got chopped in half, uh, again. Which, which uh, just seems to be a statistical normality. And then, so at this point, you only had your kind of surviving, I think it's incessor marines, but new tactical marines yeah, remaining. Yeah, five of those guys. And they were sort of just backing, backing off. Backing off. <laughs> it was only a two foot by two foot board and they reached the very back of it and then moved, slid sideways to try and get a few extra inches away from him as the Lord, uh, Nurgle Lord closed in yeah. step by step. And you, you got him actually some good shooting got him to, cause the, those bolters do have, uh, AP on them. Mm but not enough to make it worth using my invulnerable save. So I had a three up save, but I was at that point taking some wounds. Yeah. Um, I, I think you got him to two wounds and then I did make the charge at last and he charges into, and then, I mean, bear in mind that each of each Marine has two wounds, um, but his, uh, I think his axe does three damage with each hit and he, so. he swings it four times. Mm. So on the first, um, like, and because I charged, I got the, first attack and that first attack killed three marines yeah. so as soon as he hits the mm. um hits the line of them they just start you know like, just imagine this nurgle lord just ripping three primaris marines to pieces yeah at which point though you got your uh melee attack with your pistols i think into combat Don't... sort of figuring it out yeah i can't remember what i attacked with they no. do get an attack of some yeah. sort but it was like i still have my two up save against it yes but i managed to roll two ones on my two up save mm. That's take right. two wounds yeah, yeah. and die yeah so i managed to save my reputation for losing every game we played right at the last minute but like i think uh yeah they don't i think they just clubbed him to death with their the butts of their new bolt rifles mm. uh yeah that's, that's right mars mars forged technology at work but it was such a cool ending because like yeah it was this sort cool. of uh it felt like that thing that cliche in a movie where like i don't know the crashing train or something mm. like uh, comes screeching to a halt inches from the protagonist's face. Yeah. Really, like, yeah, yeah. Just, he just brought down that guy right as, right as the last blow was coming in. Cause the next round of combat, 
Oh, it's it all would over. have killed you. It was like, all over. Yeah, like, yeah, for sure, for sure. And so it was super cool and super close. Like, I, um, yeah, really positive experience overall. Like, it feels like it felt like the Space Marines could do a little bit of everything, whereas the mm. Nurgle, well, not. I mean, obviously they have strengths and weaknesses, like you say. Mm. Whereas the Nurgle units are much kind of like m- more specialized. Like the drone is amazing at shooting, but it's just shooting. Yeah. The the pox walkers are just zombies. They don't can't shoot. They just walk in a line until mm. they finally get something and bog it down. The Nurgle Lord is amazing in melee combat, but can't shoot and is slow, so just has to walk at people till he gets there. Um, whereas, like even the, the fact that the captain has a bolter built into his power fist, yeah, which is awesome by the way, which is awesome. <laughs> um, just it felt like it gave the space marines a bit more kind of flexibility in how each yeah. individual unit was used. It's actually I, I realized some stuff. I went over the. Uh, captain's data sheet uh, again uh, when I got back home and uh, that thing counts as a pistol so he gets those extra attacks in combat as well mm. which I forgot and also he's got like a six inch bubble where people get plus one to hit where presumably he just shouts shoot better men and then right they, doesn't they, that mean do that he can fire it into combat not that he gets to use it in combat uh, I think pistols you can use in combat but maybe not I thought that meant, it just meant you could shoot during the combat phase as in you could shoot if you were engaged in combat but you Good. I don't know I, I think I think pistols can be used almost as I don't know. Hmm. Don't know. We've not actually seen the rule book, which is stress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. We also didn't do um, leadership checks or anything like that. No. So. No. Uh, yeah. So it was. It was very much a kind of bare bones rules thing. But it, it gave us a sense of the flavour of you know what it's going yeah, to be. Yeah. It was like. loads of yeah. fun. And it was. It was really good. And also, it felt really characterful, which is why it's important to me. Like mm, it, it felt. Uh, it. It. There's a battle there that I remember, and in my mind, I could see how it played out, and it was really dramatic, and the models are amazing. Yeah. So it was, it was a really good experience. Yeah. The um, I think the things that I think the thing that was good about it as well is it was like it doesn't. There are still strange weaknesses with AOS. It doesn't make me want. It doesn't make me say like oh, I wish this was AOS's system because, mm. like I say, I don't think AOS needs that, that deeper stat system no. for what it simulates. But also, um, but there are things that I would like them to bring across, like. I liked I liked the differentiation of weapon types. Um, so pistols having a distinct different set of uses to rifles um, is obviously a sensible military thing, but actually there are enough sort of steampunk elements in Age of Sigma that it could kind of use something like that because one of Age of Sigma's biggest problems is shooting into combat, really. Mm. Um, and obviously there are, there's a much greater range of things that count as shooting weapons in AOS than there are in 40k. Because a shooting weapon in AOS could be a longbow if you're in traditional in traditional medieval warfare mode, yeah. it, but it could be a like a you know a magic air gold powered rifle if you're a character and overlord, one of the new dwarves, yeah. or it could be a ball of energy that you sing into being <laughs> if you are a acolyte. You know what I mean? So yeah. like, there's a lot of different things to get as melee weapons, uh, sorry, ranged weapons, and therefore it is difficult to have a hard and fast rule about what can and can't be used while you're also fighting someone. Yeah. For example, it makes sense like. Pink horrors throw fire at people because they're demons. And it works for me that they can do that in combat, right? Because mm. it's coming out of their hands. Whereas it doesn't work for me that, as you know, the AOS meta has developed, that a million orcs with longbows right. can shoot those longbows into the person they're fighting in melee combat as well as they can fight shoot them with someone inches and inches away. Yeah. So it feels like AOS does need some way of simulating what 40k is doing with the pistol rule mm. uh, of like you can't shoot your rifle into combat but you can shoot your pistol which yeah solves I, the problem i also think that characters need heroes need a bit more protection in aos than they have maybe yeah. it's, maybe it's just because I've, I've played armies that have a lot, a lot of linchpin characters like zinch 
and uh, like flesh eater courts where they rely enormously on their hero units. And um, I've got loads of judicators and I've got a venator and I've got some long strikes and you just sort of unravel an army by quite easily killing them. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, your opponent can hide behind stuff. So if you, it's a good reason to put lots of train in your games and stuff, but if you're rolling that on the table and there just isn't much terrain, it feels like that shouldn't really affect what heroes are going to be protected or not protected. It feels like they, there needs to be some extra barrier that stops mm. me from just trivially sh- shooting everything, pouring all my fire into your gaunt summoner or, or something like that. You know, Sometimes just honking at a hill so loudly <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. he dies. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so yeah. It's an, it's, it, I think that's a hard one to tweak for AOS because it, it, it kind of is mostly balanced, I would say, apart from a yeah. few armies. I, would, I think the way I would do it is I would say that the only... Something like the only ranged weapons that can be used. Um, so I, it, I don't know if there is an enemy unit within three inches of you. So melee combat range, basically, mm. you can only in the shooting phase you can only fire weapons that have a range shorter than eighteen inches or twelve inches or something mm. like that. And that would have the flip side of it would you know protect a lot of the things that currently can do that, but also it would provide a reason to be glad that you're like Stormcast Vanguard have short ranged crossbow pistols. Yeah. Because at the moment that's just bad. Like, <laughs> right. you know, they have crossbow pistols and it's nice that they can shoot, but they're still bad because mm. they are too short range to be useful. Right. Like, yeah, it's, it's similar with, uh, you can take some Raptors with, so I've, I've built them as long strikes, which are snipers basically, mm. um, which are, they're rad and we'll discuss why in skirmish later. Um, but they can also be built with, incredible rapid fire crossbows but their range is short and short stormcast are quite maneuverable but you're gonna to have to set up like screens around them and stuff which is what the aether wings are for and it's kind of not worth it it's just never worth it to have that short range mega blast unit so the the units you see you've been using the game a lot are just really long range artillery yeah and snipers and, and that kind of thing yeah the gun line thing. the gun line thing yeah and it feels like you know the there's a giving that you know range limitation as in like having it only be short range weapons that can be used during the combat phase mm. provides a meaningful difference between those units rather than short range just being worse yeah and at the moment it's in the position like like for example Karak acolytes um have a 12 inch range on their shot i think um and it's uh, 14 inches for blue horrors and 18 inches for pink horrors mm. so if the cutoff was 18 inches maybe you lose pink horrors shooting into combat but suddenly the things they split into can shoot into combat mm. and Karak acolytes which currently exist in a bit of a weird limbo for each, where they're not as good in they're not as good at shooting as pink horrors, and they're not as good at fighting as Angor. Um and yet they're quite expensive. Kind of gives them a little bit more of a kind of a role mm. in some ways, and maybe it risks overpowering some units, but that could go with the points rebalancing as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's such a significant redesign of the game, and I do wonder if it's needed to an extent because. Uh, the difference between 40k and AOS is that almost everything in 40k has a gun. Yeah. Whereas that's certainly not true for AOS. Um, it, it, a lot of people are building very heavy shooting armies because of stuff like Cunning Ruck, which mm. is like a formation that gives it absurd power. Um, whereas for stuff that doesn't really have that kind of additional layer of rules, it's kind of fine that half the army is shooting and half the army is combat. And maybe that does work. All I right. don't, I don't know that it necessarily is be- okay because mm. like you're right that like, in 40k, the, the fantasy of 40k is of a shooting game most of the time. You have, you know, some standout melee combat units and heroes. But most of the time, when you think about battles in 40k, you're thinking about gunfights. Hmm. Um, but, 
like if you can shoot in AOS, that is a flat out advantage over a unit that cannot shoot. Yeah, it is functionally an extra round of attacks yeah. every round in mm. combat. Um, it is a big difference, and the game is costed around that. Like as soon as you can shoot, the points cost for the unit goes up. Yeah, a huge amount because, and I think that is a weird position for a fantasy game to be in. Because, like I keep saying, like, you know, it is simulating kind of, you know, heroic fantasy where people can do crazy feats of strength and durability and things. But actually, the most powerful thing you can possibly do is shoot. And I don't think that's quite right. Like, you know, there's, I think we've spoken about this on a previous episode in a different context, talking about playing the meta. But, like, you know, I've got two boxes of uh, Zangor Skyfire slash Enlightened, where Enlightened are the melee one and Skyfires are the ranged one. Mm. And if I wanted to be powerful, I absolutely should never assemble either of them as Enlightened. Yeah, Skyfires are and insane. Like, enlightened come, come with the extra rules that, like, they can also be made off their discs as well. Yeah. And there's no reason to ever do that at all. Mm. Like, just why would you even... Like, you know, it makes no sense. And I feel like there are too many... Like, AOS, uh, I like it as a hobby game, and I like it as a narrative game a lot. Um, And I think maybe the game suffers for being over-power-gamed. Definitely. Mm. I have no interest in that. However, I think there is some distance GW could go that they're not currently going towards just making sure that the decisions you're making about how you assemble your models still feel somewhat impactful. Mm. Like when I make that, as I am going to, that hobby focused decision to assemble some of those models as Sangor Enlightened, I shouldn't know in my heart of hearts that I'm making the bad decision. Yeah. Like a straight up stupid decision. <laughs> like that if I wanted to win more games and I wanted to have a more effective army, I should just make the, the why, you know, because one of them is rubbish. Mm. I mean, they're not, they're not terrible, but like one of them has a amazing shooting attack and the other one doesn't. So, yeah. you know, the whole point of the Zangor Enlightened being great in close combat feels a little bit moot when the guys with the sniper, right? Snipers, not sniper rifles, sniper bows can fire them at people one inch away mm. you know like yeah it's mad it's i've got the um so the long strike he hits on it's like hits on two plus wounds on the three plus rend two damage two really strong shooting attack which is also a close combat attack for him yeah and that seems strange yeah like given that it's a 36 inch range mm. like <laughs> yeah you know there should be that point where suddenly as soon as someone's closed two three inches of him right he can't he shoot is, he has a man of... with a knife yeah <laughs> like yeah, that and that is the fantasy I think is missing from AOS at the moment. The forty k is actually getting right, which is weird because like it's interesting because um it's interesting to see what they have taken and haven't taken from AOS and the stuff that obviously they think is working, stuff that fits the fantasy, but they haven't taken the double turn rule, uh, the rolling for turns rule. Yeah, true. Which I I, I personally still think isn't great in AOS. Mm. Uh, it, it creates a lot of drama. I like that, but I think it significantly changes the way that armies behave in a way that isn't what armies are supposed to behave like yeah i think it's i like the strategic layer it adds to the game yeah um i think uh it's interesting having to plan for the potential of a double turn that's right however so abstract though <laughs> yeah what does it represent yeah. like what what you know sometimes people just do more stuff <laughs> yeah. like yeah I, I you could say it maybe represents the momentum of the battle the way things sort of seem to go your way for a for a period and then swings the other way but it has nothing to do with how well you're playing hmm. and it, yeah it just feels weird to have to position your entire army just in case the enemy does two lots of attacks and two lots of shooting and two lots of movement it's like doesn't that have just forced such a cautious and you know hesitant yeah. way of uh, war game really um uh, i mean uh, people who play it seriously I'm sure would disagree but i do think it's it's 
something I might like to see go from the game. I think it's too big a decision to take it out of AOS at mm. this stage, but I'm glad that 40k is just going to be straightforward turn order. Yeah, that said, I will say this. Like, I, you know, absolutely destroyed you in that first game we mm. played because I won the first initiative roll of the game. Mm. I don't actually know how determining initiative at the beginning of the game works, but let's assume it's a 50-50 chance per player based on other factors. Um, and then you did your turn and then I got my turn. And the thing that the role, f- it doesn't necessarily fix this problem, but the thing that the per round initiative role does in AOS is it means that if you get screwed the first time, the second time you have a chance to get a double turn because mm. you only ever get a double turn in AOS if you went second, the, the last time round, right? That's the yeah. way it works. And that's why I really like, because like actually a double turn in that, in that game of 40k that we played, might have saved you yeah because suddenly your captain's shooting twice your surviving marines are shooting twice um and that would have made a huge 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 difference as it is you had just lost because i had removed too much and you were never going to get that momentum swing the other way yeah but so much of that position was about deployment which we had no handover and if you're playing on a six by four board you're responsible for where your stuff is when you're reaching in engagement range true i just i i I do still think there are arguments for it Mm. like um it can i think it's not like people always get obsessed with the idea that a double turn is the best best thing in the world but actually i've never found that it's felt like the thing that's ended the game like i think it's always tends to be a drama prolonger basically i yeah i don't know i think i need to it's interesting i think it's because we've played a few games and we know to play for it um but i still think it doesn't fit with the fantasy yes even though it does create drama so i certainly agree that i don't know what it represents yeah yeah like, because I mean, because in that game we played, you had you know your um, jetpack marines, right? Mm. And they do a huge amount of shooting. And if you'd gotten a double turn, if that was possible, <laughs> um, you would have gotten to do that shooting twice. Yeah, which probably would have been the great evener, right? Because then my ama- shots. Yeah, then <laughs> my be. amazing multiple. I'm just going to roll all sixes now. Rolls mm. would have been balanced out by the fact that you then get to roll a shitload of dice twice. Yeah. Um, and it would have made a huge difference. And losing that potential is what lost the game because like, it put a hard cap on the amount of damage you could potentially do back but then that's not necessarily justified because the way that deployment happened was deliberately optimal for nurgle like yeah the nurgle captain was started the game in combat with the spaceman captain that only goes up only ever goes one way and True. uh the nurgle uh marines unit was within range of the you know, plasma cannon people and the drone was in range of the plasma cannon people. Like it was, a, it, it was the optimal setup for Nurgle. Yeah. And if, if, if you've achieved that in your deployment and your maneuvering, then you deserve to reap the rewards to an extent. Uh, and to have it all undone by a turn, yeah. uh, a turn order role, um, seems a little bit arbitrary. I agree um, with that, actually. Having, that. having said all that, like it has generated great moments in the AOS games we've played. Like it has, it has been a creative moments of whoa or, shit i really needed that yeah, so. the two things you can feel <laughs> in war yeah uh so i mean it's it's, it's an interesting and brave piece of design but uh i'm glad it's not in 40k and i'd be really interested because i'm going to play both systems to see like which one comes out on top yeah once i start playing them both yeah totally also i, I do totally agree with you that i still don't know what that role represents <laughs> yeah. in terms of like i can think of a moment in like a turn as i mean i, I still find that fuzzier in um as an x-wing player i find that fuzzier in all warhammer games mm. because you do so much in your turn the fact that you do moving and casting spells and shooting and combat and there is some turn by turn stuff in combat but everything else is sort of like 
because I always think of a turn in a turn-based game as like a moment in time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like, like six 20, seconds 30, or something like that. Six to ten seconds of yeah. slashing and firing. And in X-Wing where sort of unit activation is based on pilot skill and that is sort of, you know, player agnostic. It's just you activate in the order that that happens in. Yeah. Um, I can, I can mind's eye see the, like, the procession of events the you know the this this pilot moves and then in reaction to that this better pilot moves and you know what i mean that kind of thing whereas it still feels weird to me and even even 40k even in a, a fully you know reliable turn-based game it still feels weird to me that like um one army does all of this shit <laughs> and then the army other army does all of their shit mm. that still that just feels weird to me generally mm. i think but then aos has the com- compound problem of like this army does all of its shit twice <laughs> And the other army just sort of stands there, and yeah. like that just still feel odd. But that's a broader issue for me, I think, with with big, large scale war games. Yeah. Um, what we should talk about, because otherwise, I think we could just sit here and talk about forty k rules all day. Indeed, we should talk about the models because. Mm. Um, so there's two sides <laughs> of this. I think the the reveal of the Primaris Space Marines and the, and the pictures that got out, and it sort of, I mean, it, they they snuck out through leaks initially, anyway. But then, as is GW sort of style now when they reveal a new model they usually reveal it in like a 20 second video where you have to pause a blurry youtube (laughs) to get a look at it when it's not just sort of flashing in your face which actually i think is a bad way to advertise models Mm. i will say this i think they should announce stuff when they're ready i know they love teasing but i think they kind of need to just when they're ready to announce something do the little trailer but put a picture with it like a really nice high quality picture because that's otherwise it's people trading Blurry. Four ATP blurry pictures of stuff. Yeah, not which doesn't show the model at its best. And they've got um on the web store, they've got like three sixty shots, so maybe it's yeah. just too much work to do that. But like that's the uh, the best way to show a new model, isn't it? Which you can just rotate it with your mouse and have a yeah. look. I mean, totally. Like I mean, but when those announcements started to sneak out, I think the prime Marines have completely completely dominated that discussion, and we should talk about them. Yeah, but I think the thing that stood out to both of us is how good those Nurgle models Absolutely. are. Like mm. they like. I collect each stuff generally. I don't know what I'm going to do in 40k at all. Mm. Um, and I wasn't considering getting any Nurgle stuff because those gods are kind of opposed and I want stuff that I can ultimately use with my other stuff. But they're really, really nice. Like, and I was worried for a while that because they are super gribbly and weird and detail intensive that yeah. they might be a bit more of a painting burden than, particularly because they have an element of horde units as well with the Poxwalkers more than the Marines. But actually, they look like they'd be the most fun thing in the world to wash. Yeah. They, like, they're really good under a wash. And it's interesting because the, um, their initial reveal of the Death Guard, which are the Nurgle Marines, there, uh, was studio painted, heavy metal, and they really go into the detail and they, you know, loads of crazy color on there, really vivid and vibrant, the sort of stuff that looks good if you shine camera lighting at it and photograph it. Um, but all the stuff we played with was just very basically painted. Uh, it was just like a base color, a wash and a couple of spot colors. And the Nurgle, stuff looked absolutely fantastic even with just that basic application of yeah. a few different colors and washes and they the silhouette that they have like from the huge hulking commander to these noxious kind of grotesque marines just they have such good presence on the table and the shambling zombies are these kind of you know they those models are fantastic as well and they're uh, all grinning uh, yeah. really broadly as well yeah they've like... got this rictus grin on their faces uh the plague marine sorry the um the plague drone uh just looks like a an amazing piece of concept art come to life basically yeah just... like i said this one i was there but like i was looking at that and i have the thing of army ideas coming into my head yeah and it's like i just they get there it like hooks into me and that's when you do the window shopping thing mm. of like how much money would it cost to like i uh i um 
like I had that recently, just suddenly deciding like kind of fancy doing Seraphon. I want lizard men. I want to paint some lizard men. Mm. You do the window shopping thing. And then you back away because I've been getting a lot better at just saying no to new projects and trying to finish the ones I've got. So not doing it, but that kind of thing. And I totally had that looking at them because that drone is gorgeous. It's yeah. so cool. Mm. And like even the fact that it's flight stand, and they've got cool new flight stands for the Marines, but like this thing, it's flight stand is its own kind of like tentacles that it's dragging underneath yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's gross kind of mechanical entrails. Yeah. yeah. And it's sort of, it's 50%, like there's a lot of mechanical tendrils on the Imperium side in the Mechanicum. Like that's, that's a thing, mm. right? It's, you know, servitor skulls on these kind of like, you know, cables that kind of snake around. Yeah. Um, and applying that and sort of nurglifying it is great. Mm. It looks so good. But it made me think, like, man, I want to do joint Death Guard, Nurgle Demons, Dark Mechanicum, yeah. and, like, mash them all together and, into, yeah. like, just, like, gas-masked kind of plague, plaguemen with the kind of shambling, like, servitor skull tentacles and oh, stuff man. like that. Like, oh, amazing. And I, I'm not going to do that, but <laughs> looking at those models, like, that's the point of a good model, right? You kind right. of go, like, oh, shit, this is this army that is sort of, you know, being born in my imagination from looking at how evocative this miniature is. Yeah. So... Huge kudos for that, actually, because I think um, both from a, a way they look point of view, but also from a what it means for the game for Space Marines to be redesigned. Mm. Primaris of the news, but I think they really shouldn't go underestimated how good, particularly because actually I've realized I'm not a huge fan of the new Rubik Marines, the new Siege stuff. Right. I think I am, but I feel like there are bits, I don't know, maybe we get onto it another time, but mm. like there's so much, there's so much personality in those Nurgle in the Nurgle stuff and maybe the Zinch stuff necessarily is a little more stayed um, it feels like they're kind of boring people in really big hats rather than the right. Nurgle stuff that are literally dripping with they are made of dust yeah. though aren't they yeah there is that like it is hard to have loads of personality when you are dust, dust in, a, in, in an a ancient suit, suit. Yeah. but nonetheless um, mm, but sure. we'll see but yeah so let's talk about let's talk about Primaris Marines because mm. they are the, the much taller elephant in the room yeah I, I, I love the um, the Nurgle models for everything you described but the Space Marine redesign is like a fundamental uh, sea change for the for the entire 40k setting, just because it's such an iconic design and it's been there since the beginning. And any update to that design is going it just really matters. Yeah. And uh, what they've done is they've gone sort of true scale, I guess you'd call it. Yeah, I think it's I think you could call Pretty it true Like to the extent that like I think we have to accept Games Workshop are not really making 28 millimeter scale <laughs> miniature no. games anymore, especially not since iOS. Not since iOS. Like you know, and that's okay. It's just, you can't, if you put anything from these games next to a, a miniature for a, like a 28 mil historical game. Like The Hobbit. Like The Hobbit. Yeah. It's just like, they're giants. <laughs> it's just bigger. And you can say, oh, heroic scale, things are bigger. <laughs> bigger things are just bigger things at some point. If all the things are equally heroic, then that becomes the new standard of big, you know, yeah. that becomes the new normal, doesn't it? So yeah, so everything's getting bigger and Marines are now, have now caught up and exceeded that, basically. Yeah. And it's really telling that, uh, so you can swap in shoulder pads and the heads from any of the Space Marine range from forever, uh, which tells you everything about them the redesign uh, of the proportions, limb proportions. Yeah. The fact that they could keep the shoulder pads and the heads the same size and stretch the rest of the Marine shows you how mad the old space Marine proportions are. And kind of, mm. uh, I love them, but they're how kind of dumpy, how small their torsos are, how small their thighs are and that kind of stuff. So the new Marines are taller, but they've kept this bulk to them. So mm. the thighs, they've got like an extra layer of plating that kind of maintains the silhouette of the space Marine. Uh, but it's, bigger it's more imposing and i don't know i love the way they've posed the tactical marines to look as though they're ta 
tactically assessing the battlefield, like looking around with their weapons slightly down or slightly to an angle so they could bring it up for snapshots. Yeah. The kind of state of readiness in the, in the posture mm. for, for the Primaris Marines that I think really suits the Space Marine fantasy. And I think, um, simply scaling them up in that way means that the, like the shoulder pads haven't scaled up with them. Yeah. And it's kind of the benefit of like, I think if they'd ever said we need to make the Space Marine shoulder pads smaller, that would be taken as like heresy, literally. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's probably the first heresy. Yeah. But it kind of was necessary because I think it enables that, um, it enables that sort of tactical sort of subtlety that you're kind of saying. Like you can't really do like subtle arm positioning with a Marine yeah. who's, when you only ever see half of their arms yeah, true, realistically. True. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, a space Marine is a sort of a dramatic man emerging from two halves of an egg that, uh, you know, <laughs> like, um, that are either side of him. Yeah. You know what I mean? The gun poking out the middle. Like, yeah. And, uh, just that alone means that you pay more attention to what the rest of their body is doing. And guess what? When you pay more attention to what people's legs and arms are doing, you see more of their character. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, I mean, to, to flip side to this, like, um, maybe talk a bit more about Horus Heresy in a minute, but like, uh, my thousand sons, um, my thousand good boys have been, you know, one of the most recent releases for them in, on the Forge World side is, um, I've completely forgotten what they're called, the, the melee, elites they have like a i think mm. it's i think it's canatai but there's yeah, a lot of scimitar, pretend, right? yeah yeah there's a lot of pretend egyptian words mm. um i think it's canatai we'll find out um and they've you know, it's an upgrade kit it goes over an existing kind of heresy era marine body and they dual wield like sickles basically mm. like um the kinds of things you'd see crossed on the chest of a pharaoh and um they uh the, the arms are beautiful but the limitations of that pose with the shoulder pads means what you can how you the, the ways in which you can potentially pose a marine holding two melee weapons which should be a dramatic thing um look super stiff and robotic and awkward and i can now imagine what the primaris version look that looks like where they kind of rescaled the body a bit and suddenly they can hold them in dramatic ways mm. whereas like i love so much the forge world stuff and we should get onto that i guess uh, later in the pub but like that one model just doesn't appeal to me at all because of the limitations of that original space marine body where mm. they have to hold them like they're like a knife and fork and that's the only way you can hold two things <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it was fascinating to talk to um we got a chance to talk to tom walton shout out to tom walton uh, indeed and his beautiful dreadnought which we'll talk about in a minute. yeah we certainly will um and he, he's worked on a lot of space marine stuff and uh it's been years in the making from what he was suggesting that like such a fundamental redesign of such a big part of GW's output, obviously you'd expect it to take years, but it's interesting to hear that a lot of the design philosophy about it, uh, behind it, and about how it's kind of, the new Space Marines are as much about expanding the design vocabulary of what a Space Marine thing can look like. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of moving away from, like, boxiness to something that allows for slightly more, slightly more organic shapes as well as that. Mm. Uh, so, uh, a space, so the, this is embodied in the new kind of floating Terminator weapon platform dudes yeah. whose name I, I think were probably the most contentious models when they were revealed yeah and i think the reason for that is because they contain a you know they've got like a huge bulky jetpack that is got fins that you know you can imagine angling as they hover to keep yeah. them afloat and to turn them um and all those shapes are quite rounded and organic and like rounded jets and that kind of thing and it was uh those bulbous shapes you see in eldar it's like a different design mm, maybe language. tau as well tau yeah, yeah so but elements of that have been brought into the space marine design very subtly especially even in the primaris marines where their breastplates are more rounded in the shape and if you look at um the new dreadnought 
the shoulder pads on the dreadnought are slightly concave in a way that they wouldn't have been in previous dreadnoughts. Yeah. They would have just been a box of big squarey, lots of sharp edges. Um, so I think it's really interesting to look at the new space marines and how they've, they look high tech because in the, uh, design philosophy for, uh, for Warhammer 40,000, big boxy, uh, wibbly things that are really oil stained and have pipes and, you know, rust yeah. are Imperium and thousands, tens of thousands of years old. Whereas the smoother shapes, uh, the more elegant Eldar shapes and the more elegant Tau shapes are the more technologically advanced societies. Mm. So it makes sense that to go up to Mark X armor, the Space Marines would gain some of that technological ad- uh, advancement and move forward into slightly more organic form. And I think that's also what the Primaris Marines represent. Um, they still have this, the classic Space Marine silhouette, but the actual surfaces are allowed to be more flexible. They're allowed to bulge out and they're allowed to be more rounded, uh, which is a, kind of a significant move. It doesn't sound like it, but I think that's quite a significant move. It is, space yeah. kind of look like. I think, and this sort of ties into, I think one of the reasons they've been contentious, but I think one of the reasons that it's necessary is like that fiction, um, it sort of exposes the difficulty of having a fiction that I think fights the creation of new models and new shapes mm. because, you know, the the legacy of, of the Horus Heresy and the sort of the rise of the kind of hyper-religious imperial mindset um, where modifying anything is is, is heresy, yeah. where half they've forgotten how to make half of the things they own mm. um, is a brilliant bit of sci-fi writing and subversive sci-fi writing, which is what <coughs> Warhammer's always, always been so good at. It's not just being a genre, but mm. undermining it yeah. and saying like, you know, okay, humans have these hyper-advanced weapons, but they've forgotten how to make them. So if they lose them, that's it. Mm. And also uh, changing them creates like a religious cultural crisis. Like, um, you know, it, it goes without saying, but like the, the fiction of, of the 41st millennium is like always somewhere between like, you know, Judge Dredd and 13th century Europe. That's, that's kind of where it is set. Like it is, it is the future, but the future bears like all of the mistakes of the past at once. Like it's not, it's not Star Trek. Yeah. Like, you know, they get there in the Horus Heresy where they basically meet yeah, Star Trek yeah. and go like, well, we don't agree with this, so we're going to set it on fire. Such a, <laughs> like, such a good book. <laughs> it's, it's so good. And like, yeah. um, but at the same time, and that fiction is brilliant for that reason. However, um, it doesn't have anywhere to go mm. if that's, you know, and like, and I think they're doing it in the right way where, you know, a Primark comes back who never necessarily subscribe to those ideas that you can't change things mm. you know gilliman created the codex astartes like you know there's um you know he's always been a kind of reformer and a change mm. someone who establishes new ways of doing things relatively progressive yeah. for a primark yeah and they have had to sort of parachute in belisarius call as a new character as mm. a kind of arch magos who's been around for ten thousand years and has the expertise to do this stuff which yep. is yes it's a retcon but there have been other characters like him in the 40k fiction mm. so the the there is precedent for mechanicum arch magos's who can come along and enact the plans of a Primarch. That's just something that can happen, right? Um, and I like that they're doing it in this way where it's not, you know, they are necessarily saying not everyone's going to agree with this. You know, not every every chapter in the fiction is going to be okay with this happening, but it has happened. You know, there are new Marines and this is what they look like. Mm. And, you know, yes, that can be divisive and yes, it can be upsetting. And yes, it can be upsetting from a hobby point of view because... While actually, when we saw them at Warhammer first, the new Primarch Marines don't actually look that bad next to old tactical mm. Marines. Yeah. They look like the amazing new Marines that have come along, like bigger guys. And it seems to be that from the fictional point of view, um, Primaris Marines can be created out of 
other Marines. Like it's another round of gene, gene, gene mm, treatment and that okay, kind of interesting. thing. Uh, that seems to be implied by some of the fiction. Like okay. some of them are new and some of them are like uh, a, it's like a treatment, that. which I think, I think leaving that at least a little bit fuzzy really helps because you could, uh, yeah, okay, you so can you... say that some of your veterans have then gone and gone and have the Primaris treatment. Oh, so you could also say that about a lot of hero characters. Yeah. That... If they choose to update yeah. the models. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that helps because that's the thing that looks really wrong at the moment. There, definitely. Is, is Primaris this, standing next to yeah. like Cypher or somebody and it's like, right. yeah, like bless him, my tiny little son. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, seeing the small, um, kind of, uh, the robed Dark Angels veterans next to Primaris for some reason looks quite balked yeah um because it looks like the same next to jowers and like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does actually like, maybe that's it maybe that's what i was thinking um but yeah the next to normal space marines they're fine and i think um what from the range we've seen so far there's still loads of space for space marine stuff like uh the new jet packed primaris marines are not assaults no they're flying um they are well they're flying terminators yeah. who are armed exactly like bikes <laughs> which makes them land speeders yeah Awesome. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> speeds of people now. Yeah. Uh, and so your assault marines still have, obviously have utility and the devastated squads have certain weapons that also give them like great utility. Well, you pointed this out that actually we haven't seen anything from the Primaris that's particularly melee focused yeah. yet at all. Like mm. they're all like ranged specialists. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Which is, yeah, reflected by the, the captain's plus one to hit or a, like they're supposed to just form fire squads, I think. And, uh, and I, I bet they'll be pointed so that you can't take too many of them. So they really should be like a rarity in this universe. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but we'll we'll see. The flip side of that fiction, and to bring us on to talking about it, because uh, we got to sit and pretty close up, um, like the new Dreadnought. Oh, okay. I, when they announced it, when, well, when, because it was designed by Tom Walton, mm. it's lovely. Um, and um, because he came over to see it with us, we got to play with the army, mm. the the, uh, the GW army um, one. Yeah. Um not play not play with it in terms of rolling dice like play with it in terms of like rotate it endlessly yeah, and go, exactly. Ooh, look at that <laughs> um and um like when i announced you know i think when he teased that they were going to do a primary or all or gw did they did yeah um and um i thought that didn't make loads of sense because if like how many the primaries haven't been around long enough to die yeah and to be interned as dreadnoughts but you know um when we were talking to tom he pointed out that like I think the coffin in the middle is basically the core of an old dreadnought. Yeah. And the idea is that, you know, they have just ripped the sarcophagus bit out of the dreadnoughts that are already in service mm. and plugged them into a new, much bigger frame, which makes complete sense. Mm. Like if I was a dead Marine from 10,000 years ago, I would want to be plugged into a fucking Titan. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, don't limit me to a box with legs that waddles at people and then punches them. I think the first thing I said to Tom was, you're the, you've given the dreadnought knees. Which is the greatest gift anyone could have given the dreadnought. <laughs> I, I love those because the um, heresy era contempt of dreadnoughts have knees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So who took them point, away? <laughs> at some point in the history, in the, 40, in the history of that ten thousand years, yeah. they they just decided, you know what? <laughs> Our venerated dead, they don't need knees. <laughs> They'll be right? fine. It's more venerable <laughs> to waddle, to, to waddle yes. like a penguin towards towards whatever you're trying to kill. Yeah, it's interesting. Video games have brought these uh, things to life, and then you know. Uh, really feel sorry for the animator who first had to take on a dreadnought as a you know a walking machine yeah uh, and uh, they they look really they've done a good job like in dawn of war and stuff and dawn of war 3 that they're, they're just big enthusiastic puppies that just sort of like bound forwards yeah but it's quickly. not right really is it but like, it's it? not it doesn't quite fit what they, they should be like um so they they just they look the new dreadnought's so imposing and huge and it still has that broad-shouldered boxy aesthetic but it's just 
been normalized now uh, almost as a as a mech. It feels like I mean, then this comes across explicitly in the way that it's built. We called talking to Tom about how how oh, a yeah, kit yeah. works, where mm. it's built with the skeleton and then the armor plating on top of the skeleton, mm. like a knight. And it feels like the Imperial Knight uh, kit sets a precedent for like how interesting and modular and expressive a vehicle or a walker design can slash should be yeah um like you look at that thing and it has kind of like it's it's funny that like you know when back in the 80s when they designed the space marine dreadnought they were designing a walker mm. right like a walking mech for the space marines the fact that it is a dead person in a coffin with with arms is the 40k-ishness of it mm. you know but in any other setting it would be a manned mech, right? Like that, that is the role that it fits in the battlefield. And then you fast forward the fiction a little bit, not long actually, and multiple iterations of design and different waves of design thinking coming in at different times. And you get the Imperial Knight, which is not a totally dissimilar idea. It's a, it's a walker. It's, I mean, it's a lot bigger. Hmm. Um, it is, I mean, in that case, and it's a person plugged into a chair, yeah. but like still, like it's a similar fantasy and it is, it has so much more kind of gravitas and sense of power and it's so much more poseable and like, you know, it's such a, you know, frequent conversion piece because it looks so kind of spectacular. Yeah. And the 30k era Contemptor Dreadnoughts have kind of got there as well because they have, they're more expressive. They have faces because they have the helmet sticking out of them, even though that's silly. Why has it got a helmet? <laughs> it's a dead person. Yeah. Where's the head? <laughs> like all of these thoughts might occur to you, but like still it has more express. And that, that's what I really, really liked about the new Dreadnought mm. is like, it's still a coffin wearing armor, but <laughs> like, yeah. But it's like you can see the freedom to like give it personality and for it to actually like for you to kind of imagine how it moves without having to kind of unthink the waddling thing that <laughs> yeah. they can't get around with the old it's one. It's too late now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really big as well. Yeah, as it's, it should it's be. a, yeah. yeah, I think that's the thing. Like it's funny because I think you said this yesterday, but like when we, when we were sat playing with the Marines and the Nurgle mm. and there were no other older 40k models, like I completely forgot about the scale change. Yeah, like it just looked like Space Marines versus Nurgle, and like there's definitely a parallel universe where they decided that these weren't Primaris Marines; they were just Marines, and they were just doing a scale change, mm. which I know some people would have preferred them to do if they don't like the fiction. You know, that's a that's a personal thing. Um, like you completely forget about the scale when you're looking at them. However, that dreadnought is still massive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. much like much bigger than you think it is. Mm. I think because like. On the shelf that it was on, I only saw this in a photo later. It stood next to what I think might be a new Nurgle dreadnought, yeah, on, which is closer to the old scale, also dreadnought equivalent, yeah, yeah. And it is like my gross son. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't talk to my ten thousand year old diseased son ever again. Uh, it's a, uh, it, it's what dreadnought should be like, and I think it's definitely going to be represented in the rules. I think dreadnought's going to be a lot more powerful generally, but especially yeah. that Primaris dreadnought. Well, it feels like an update to the fantasy. I think that's, that's probably yeah. what I would say across mm. the board with new 40k stuff. It feels mm. like a modernization of the old fantasy. Mm. So while Primaris Marines have new rules and they are a distinct thing from old space marines, the role they play on the battlefield is what you imagine a space marine would be doing. Yeah. Like when, you know, we're both reading the 30k, the Horus Heresy novels, the, you know, they are a, there is always going to be power creep in these games. And, you know, the, the, I remember getting back into Warhammer and having to learn what MEQ was and it's Marine equivalent. Hmm. And it's because a Marine ha is the base standard of Warhammer, hmm. you know, like what is equivalent to a Marine in my army and how does it work? And maybe the relative strength of armies is totted up by the relative strength of their Marine equivalents, basically, which is fine from a game system point of view, but it's actually 
pretty bad from a fiction point of view or a mm. feel point of view because they're not supposed to be the baseline that everything else is measured from. They're supposed to be fucking amazing. Adept yeah. studies. Like they're supposed to be the most amazing thing on the battlefield. And it feels like every now and then you need to just do a pass and like move them up again. And maybe in 10 years, we're talking about how everything is now a Primaris equivalent and the scale creep kind of continues mm. and they're releasing like a six inch tall chaos space marine to compensate. And when we're 80 year olds, uh, yeah. every space marine will be as, as big as us. Yeah, and exactly. We'll be They'll finally be the right size. <laughs> yes. Um, but like, I totally get why this is necessary and it feels like a, a significant advance for that reason. Yeah. And it's, as someone who's kind of going to be getting, getting back into 40k as a new player really mm. after drifting away from it for a long time it's such a good hook like i want an army of primaris crimson fists straight up that's the thing i want to collect now and it is it, this fresh start gives me a really good way into having a space marine army and also you know that they're not going to update them for a long time so it's going to be it's going yeah, to be good now's the time yeah for sure i th- also love the way that um uh, the new edition of 40k this is also partly thanks to the gathering storm uh, narrative lead up to it has reintroduced heroes into that fiction in a mm. big way heroes and villains as well um so having a primark come back and demon primarchs are definitely going to be a thing well we don't know for sure but mortarians so come the, on <laughs> the, the, the hilarious fucking thing about this is oh they did a trailer for mortarian and they showed the corner of his scythe yeah who kind of leaked earlier in the year so everyone knows mortarian who's the mm. primarch of the death guard um is coming back right but there's been some like discussion about it, some like coy stuff. Like I remember, uh, shout out to uh, former PC game writer Rich McCormick, now of The Verge, um, who sort of he desperately wants. I think they made reference to a cowled Primark, as in mm. wearing a cowl. Yes, and he desperately, desperately, as a as a Dark Angel player, he desperately wants oh, it right. to be the lion. Right. Uh, okay. And it's like, it's not, mate. <laughs> it's going to be Mortarian because yeah, yeah. they keep teasing it. And but also, but obviously, there's some like. Oh, but it's just a rumor. And then we were on like the train back from Coventry <laughs> yeah, yesterday, and you the... opened the you opened the program, which we had looked through already. Mm. And the opening spread of the program, where the the fucking contents page is, mm. is a, what is clearly a piece of new 40k art that hasn't otherwise been shown. It's in got Primaris Marines yeah, on it. It's got yeah. Primaris Marines fighting Death Guard. Uh, Gilliman's in the background, no. and who is in the middle of that image? Right in the middle. Right in the middle of it, flying towards Gilliman. <laughs> But Mortarian <laughs> in his entirety. Yeah. If you want to know what that model actually looks like, look at that piece of concept. It's, it's, it's classic GW teasing <laughs> where they've shown the corner of a scythe mm. in a 20 second YouTube snap cut montage video, but put an entire fucking picture of the, at least the concept art for the model. Yeah. Right in the, on the first page of the program yeah, for yeah, their annual event. So yeah, it's definitely Mortarian, but you're right. Like, yeah, Heroes and Villas. Magnus is going to have a big role as well. Yes, Cause he's yeah. a big red man. He's, He's hungry for more <laughs> planets. <laughs> uh, um, I, so I love the idea of uh, surely they can bring back more of the Primarchs and they're going to bring mm-hmm. back more of the Demon Primarchs, which is a great way to evolve the story as well. Because they're so like the character of those uh, from 30K, the character of those heroes is so well defined. Yeah. Uh, and they have such an impact on the character of their legions as well, which is great from a hobby perspective because you can kind of carry through Mortarian's vibe into your nurgle army whatever it might be. yeah actually mortarian is the reason i can't collect the 40k nurgle army because yeah, he's is. such a dick this is actually maybe a segue to get us something yeah. i think i was going to do this month. he is such a prick to magnus <laughs> at the council of nikea which leads directly to the burning of prospero several years later mm. that i can't really forgive him uh. as the father to a thousand sons yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> you should read um, um the fourth book of the Horus flight of the eisenstein uh, is where mortarian comes in the de- it's a story about the death guard so that's the one you should pick up if you want to hate him even I'll get more i get them still on book two he's yeah good. he's good like but nonetheless like yeah he's he's ironically 
given how they're all going to go, he's very anti-Magnus during mm. the Council of Nikea. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Given what he's like. Um, but yeah, nonetheless. Man, that's, uh, that's a, that's an hour and a quarter on, on New 40k. Yeah, it's important. It it's is. Exciting. Yeah. It's huge. And like, so you're, you're all in on Crimson Fists. I think so. I think I'll mull over it, but that's kind of what I used to paint. And I love that color scheme. I think it would look really good on primary space marines. Yeah. Uh, and I think with a bit of weathering and, you know, uh, really dark blue, the kind of. Which solves the problem we were talking about last month, right? Like yeah. you don't like ultramarines blue. So let's mm. go for the other blue guys who are, but their story is really cool because they've been all but wiped out by the orcs. Uh, so they would get Primaris, like they would be reinforced, I think. Like yeah. Gulliman would say, look, you, you take a few squads and, you know, rebuild the order. Um, uh, uh, But I'm going to hold off in case they announce some new chapters, which I think they might do. Um, mm. I think Gulliman will form some new chapters as part of the new fiction. And if any of them take my fancy, then I might just go all in on a different Yeah, it's chapter. cool time to kind of be there at the ground floor of a new thing. Yeah, well. it's, it's great to have uh, Gulliman be a kind of, uh, be the emperor, basically he's not and never will be but functionally he's able to do things that uh, the emperor would do if he was around he's, he's kind of a proxy uh which lets him just set up new chapters change the space marines it's be a giant dick for no reason <laughs> yeah anything he wants uh so yeah it's, it's it's a good time if you're into that fiction i think yeah i, I don't know what i'm going to do because i'm i'm i really want to play it i also want to maintain my commitment to getting through my existing projects i'm going to uh aos event at the beginning of september and i want my os have done like I, I feel pretty confident about it yeah but I, you know i have my kind of things but like you know i i still love that setting of that game i love those models i want to do it i did have the thought that uh and i keep going back and forth on this because obviously because i have a not insubstantial number of zinch demons that is a out of the box 40k army yeah and maybe if <laughs> if i'm still working on aos stuff and you start to go in the direction of of 40k we can play because we can do crimson fists versus zinch demons and yeah. those works however um the things i love about the 40k setting are actually fairly far from zinch demons like i really like thousand suns i really like Armin as a character and i could possibly go in that direction but actually i really like the machinery i really like the kind mm. of the feel of the yeah. like i love the skatarii models yeah like um mechanicum generally like i love that kind of industrial gothic thing and actually the kind of mad zinch demon thing which i love in aos where it feels kind of subversive and weird doesn't quite fit what i love about 40k so i'm trying to figure out whether and this has some bearing on some model work like i was going to do my lord of change on quite a fantasy base like use some of the um aos specific basing stuff that you could hand wave in a 40k setting but it's not going to look right for 40k mm. it's going to be like sort of like fantasy murals and stuff yeah um and so I have a decision to make about whether or not I want to make my demons setting agnostic so that I can potentially use them in both. Um, which I might do because it's tempting to just take my demons, add a couple of boxes of Rubik Marines. I already own Ironman because Pip very kindly got me 40k Ironman for mm. Christmas. So I should have that model. Yeah. Like I could, I could have, you know, a thousand, 1500 point army pretty quickly, I think. But there's that temptation that like the thing I love about 40k is actually not the way Zinch necessarily represented. Even the thing I love about the Thousand Sons, who I love as a legion and I love their story, their 40k iteration is still trapped in amber. You know, I, and I, I think there's so much to do in that fiction that I'd be amazed if they got around to advancing that anytime soon. Mm. Um, either for Chaos Space Marines more generally or for Thousand Sons specifically. Like, 
Ironman has got, I, I suspect, all parts of the fiction, some of them are going to be on pause for a while as yeah. other things move forward. Yeah. Ironman searching for a cure for the rubric and the flesh change and, you know, trying to get into the Black Library to steal those secrets from the Eldar. Mm. Like, that stuff is just going to be happening forever, as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, maybe they'll move that forward. Magnus's involvement maybe helps. Yeah. The fact that the planet of the sorcerers has been manifest in the, uh, in, in the, like, the, what's the, the kind of real verse in the real verse immaterium immaterium empyrean blah blah blah, blah. immaterium's the warp yeah. space isn't it i don't know Imper- it's, yeah it's the thing i can't pronounce mm. but i i'm seeing the word with my mind vision <laughs> um <laughs> brains that thing Mad. um you know is manifest over prospero there is some right. man- meaningful development and tempted but mm. part of me is tempted to just go do dark mechanicum or something i think it's just uh, a really good opportunity to paint differently and you can really paint completely differently in 40k and that's one of the things that i really took away from warhammer fest and seeing the two ranges is that uh i got super increasingly luminous with my stormcasters yeah so especially my like the long strikes i've done it like they're really like mass really bright blue gradients everywhere shining gold and that is the aos to me it's that gleaming incredibly colorful really push the contrast to make it look you know yeah gorgeous in that way but then seeing uh, like a forge word army or or a kind of a really well painted space marine army that games workshop produced it's all these beautiful matte colors and it's a very different type of universe. yeah absolutely uh, maybe this actually brings us on to like kind of the painting hobby side of, of yeah. this month for us yeah, yeah, sure. like i because i totally have had that feeling like i i've realized with regret that i think i i i'm pleased with my thousand sons so far i've got one more unit in the works um but actually i think i made a mistake like quite a big mistake um and I stand by the decision to do them in metallics because it feels right. Um, but like I, when I came to basing them, I used the same uh, sort of philosophy of what a base should look like that I was using for my AOS stuff, mm. which was that I want a base to act as a kind of a poppy background with a view to the idea that you're going to look at these models from kind of like above and at a slight isometric kind of tilt. Yeah. Um, you want the model to kind of leap off the base the model itself not the not the kind of holistic kind of entirety of all of the plastic things but specifically you know the model begins at its feet that kind of thing and then the more more heresy stuff the more heresy models i've seen and the more heresy stuff i've read i've realized that actually no i want the model to begin at the plastic bottom of the base uh, which is a different way of thinking about it and it means like it's almost like each individual model is like a little scene where the base has to be complementary to the model and maybe even not clash, but like even sort of absorb some of the kind of uh, contrast bit. So I did my Marines, I've, you know, I thought I was being clever at the time in Space Wolf colors. I did the bases in Space Wolf colors hmm. because that Thousand Suns Red just bursts off it, which I think I, I, you know, I stand by the, kind of color theory side of that but actually i think it's wrong for horus heresy so like the thing i did a test one today but like the thing i'm going to commit to now is i'm going to rebase the entire lot of them Mm. with a kind of desert much more grounded much more realistic kind of warmer thing to kind of like absorb some of that red and kind of make them look like they belong i'm also going to weather all of them having justified um having the kind of clean armor Mm. i now would like them to look more like they belong like and that's from seeing how other people have done it but also, um, you know, my big kind of splash out, treat myself purchase this month because it came back in stock was Horus Heresy Book 7, um, which is Inferno, which oh, is the beautiful thing I showed you earlier. Yeah. Like that, that book, I mean, 
it, it seems crazy. Like if you told me when I got back into this Hobbit, Hobbit, when I got back into this Hobbit <laughs> a year ago, um, <laughs> he was very pleased to see you. <laughs> he was delighted. But when I go back into the hobby, notwithstanding that, when yeah. I go back into the hobby, um, if you told me like you're going to spend 80 pounds on a book, mm-hmm. yeah. then I like, I would think you were mad and I might have been mad to do that, but oh my God, that thing is fucking amazing. Yeah. I wish that existed for, uh, for anything else, everything else. Like if I could do that for like a 40k army this or is kind of actually, like this is the functionally the equivalent of an army book for mm. the horus heresy setting it's 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 its seventh book but it is like a leather bound several hundred pages um feels like a copy of the encyclopedia britannica uh it's its corners are capped with metal which have the imperial aquila stamped into them the pages are edged in silver so mm. when you close it so it has a ribbon for fuck's sake it's a book with a ribbon <laughs> and a it book. is um, it's fucking amazing like it's such a treat as someone who's into that fiction and it is like it's written like a history book like a big tome and most of it is history of the historical it is some it is some future iterator remembrances thesis on the events of the burning of prospero which is treated entirely as a historical event if you know how the how the horus heresy stuff tends to be told this is not a surprise but like yeah it is not treated as a bit bit of modern fiction a bit of modern sort of genre fiction it is we are going to explain the political <laughs> surroundings of this event that happened and the amount of detail it has rules in it it has rules at the back for the new units and things like that but most of it is just dense text for hundreds of pages with amazing art yeah really great art. like and deep like and maps and then it was seeing like like maps of tizka which is the last city on prospero the burning of prospero scenarios that we're playing through in that game uh, all set in Tizka, uh, gets a map in that book that is presented like almost like Google Earth photography. Like it's obviously completely fictional; it's a labeled map, but it looks like a real place. It looks like Cairo or Baghdad. Like it, you know, you can imagine. Like you can see on the map, you can see the kind of pyramid temple complexes of the cults of the Thousand Suns, which is the the sci-fi element of it. But beyond that, are city streets, and like you can see water treatment plants and beaches, and kind of city outskirts and slums and it feels real yeah and that was when i decided from a hobby point of view that like oh shit i need to i need to rethink how i've been approaching heresy and 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 actually i thought i was at the time that's a stupid thing like i thought i was approaching doing the metallics i thought i was you know approaching it in a suitably different way Mm. but i need to go even further and i think maybe that uh this has been a long monologue for a simple point but like that has made me think that like maybe if i do a new 40k army i want it to be different as well and that i should have one painting style for aos one painting style for heresy and one painting style for 40k yeah and that means that maybe bringing my demons through to 40k just because i can isn't the right thing to do Mm. if that makes sense yeah i I think maybe you could bring them through to game with but maybe it feels as though you wouldn't be necessarily satisfied as a to put it on a shelf as a 40k army uh and it'd be really interesting to kind of discover what the differences are between 40k and horus heresy like how you approach painting it's very interesting to see the horus heresy armies that were at warhammer fest because they made excellent use of colored metallics that uh for example the emperor's children are purple and gold incredibly ostentatious color combination um Mm. but the way they did it it was so dulled down and just like worn and uh recognizably the right colors and still had like glittered and kind of shone a little bit but it was, it didn't look like a 40k army. Like somehow it was just a different level of grime and kind of, uh, ancient machinery. 
Yeah, totally. Mm. Like, um, and and some of that forty, some of that thirty k stuff. Actually, I I don't necessarily like like the way it looks. I love mm. the models. Like, there's a sort of there's a a lot of the thirty k stuff. The horse, the forge world stuff is painted like um, like weirdly, like you might paint a sort of airfix model of a World War Two fighter or something it's it's sort of material realism first yes and it photographs extremely well i think at a tabletop level actually it doesn't necessarily look it, it risks being uh swallowed by the, yeah. the mat or the tabletop itself perhaps and i'd like to find a middle ground there i think actually like when i say it's only it's kind of just the basing that mm. bothers me about my current thousand suns like i feel like once i've based them and weathered them i'll yeah. be at a place i really like where it's mm. kind of somewhere between the two things um in fact, and doing that test one today, I was like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, this will work." Like, yeah. and it's not too much work, so it'll be it'll be pretty, I think, painless, just time basically. Mm. Um, but it's made me more conscious that, like, I really love feeling like I'm contributing something to that particular fiction in each case. So I want to just like with the Harlequins, which is my hobby thing for this month, mm. and you know, dwell on it too much. But like, I'm building those Harlequins for Shadow War. They are going to be a particular group of Harlequins that fight in a particular place at a particular time, and I'm not necessarily going to build them in a way that means i can expand out into having a harlequin's army yeah because a i don't want to paint that but also b i like focusing i would rather focus than mm. not yeah i'm um currently building out my uh i've got a box of skitarii and at warhammer fest i picked up a tech priest who yeah. can be, be run in shadow war if in future you get like certain points that let you hire hero characters so basically for you can either cash in your caches yes um for either 100 points to spend on your army mm. or one use of a character for one game yeah uh so i i picked him up knowing that he might turn up in shadow war but secretly really could have a skitari admech army in 40 new 40k uh and also just as a kind of small scale hobby project where uh i get to use the cool braces that you've given me uh chris to create like a uh, I can imagine if I just have about 20 of them doing a display board for them and just yeah. kind of having those bases slot into that and having that be on a shelf, like it could go in so many different directions. And that's actually more broadly talk about GW stuff. Uh, as a hobbyist, I feel as though all of my stuff can, has multiple applications now. Mm. So I can take, uh, any collection of models I have and take them to skirmish or take them into shadow war or turn them into a display board and take them to armies on parade. Like everything can do lots of different things, both in your gaming sense and in a hobby sense, Yeah, uh, which is kind of what seems to have emerged over the last couple of years, perhaps just because of the sheer scale of stuff they've released. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about building up those Katari. I took a little photograph of one of the uh, beautiful display cabinets at Warhammer Fest where they showed off the kind of John Blanche models that have mm. been produced. You, if the you, Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've read White Dwarf, the last few months they've been running regular spreads on this where uh, people have uh, done incredible like modifications uh, to existing 40k stuff and then painted it in a very John Blanche kind of uh, ochres and greys uh, style to like incredibly grimdark gothic look. Uh, and I absolutely love that. I'm just going to rip it off wholesale for my Skitari. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I literally photographed it and that's going to be my color reference now. <laughs> They're going to be really, it's going to be really interesting watching them, seeing them up against my Harlequins, which yeah, are like so kind different. of 80s cyberpunk. Yeah. Yeah. That's thing. so awesome. I can't wait for them to fight because they're both the way their rules are like diametrically like, completely opposed. Like you're, you do one thing. I do this shooty thing. I do running, jumping, stabbing, terrifying yeah. theater. <laughs> <laughs> and which is awesome as well. I was thinking about this because like, the Skitari, I don't have any sense of aesthetic culture. They've got no interest in well, what the, the theatre is. <laughs> like a, a, um, 
like uh, a harlequin causes fear when it charges you and that's because its mask is supposed to be changing to show your worst fears right like, and the whole thing is supposed to be the thing and scatari have really high leadership hmm. which means most mechanically and sort of in the fiction they don't care <laughs> right it's yeah. like i don't really understand <laughs> art <laughs> can i turn this one to a zero and therefore yeah. win the scenario <laughs> Uh, so I think it's going to be a really fun, uh, fun game. I think we're going to go to the local Games Workshop store where they'll have lots yeah. of scenery for it. That might well be a next month thing. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool to get that that project together. But yeah, they're, they're kind of so philosoph- philosophically opposed, and, and the painting styles will be so different as well from my approach to these guys and your approach to the Harlequins. Yeah, so that's a really, really exciting prospect. Yeah. Speaking of painting, we should talk about Golden Demon. Yeah, because we specifically went to Warhammer Fest on the mm-hmm. Sunday because that's the Golden Demon Day to see the entries. Mm. Uh, we made, we managed one proper lap and it's quite early in the day, like after this entries had gone in. Mm. Um, and we went to it in the end. That is the best time to go because the way it works is people enter their models and then as the day goes on, models get taken away from photographing if they're good and, and further judging if they're good and then eventually just get taken away for collection if they have not made the next round. And there was definitely experience of going around at the beginning of the day and looking at things and obviously so much, some, some of it is just incredible. And some of it is like, I could do that and then inevitably you go back an hour later and all of the stuff you could do is gone <laughs> yes it's a, a the way they do it the way they slowly remove things until only the best is left it's just the gentlest way of letting everyone know what the standards are <laughs> uh, so yeah absolutely. it was interesting to see that uh, and it's also it's just incredible to see the best stuff but it, the stuff that really inspired me was the stuff i could almost like in a year i maybe i could do that actually if i just Same, learned how yeah. to do this stuff I was, wait, I was talking to pip about this earlier yeah and it's like it felt like at the highest level, it's like I am 10 years from this. Yeah. And maybe even it's too late because that 10 years already needed to have happened. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, and then, yeah, and then you're right. Like, and that was the stuff that was, you know, the winning the big prizes. Like, mm. um, it might be worth talking about some of that stuff quickly before we get onto the stuff that was actually yeah. like achievable. Yes. <laughs> Cause like, for example, there's a Nagash diorama mm. nagash <laughs> nagash he's, nagash he's from bath <laughs> um uh, nagash diorama uh which is which was also adepticon yes uh did the round of the internet it's a it's a it's an insane piece of work it's because unbelievable yeah. because it's almost i think it's almost unfair that that qualifies for one of the categories because there's the free-for-all category from right. or whatever yeah uh, i don't think it should be in that category this is not a serious argument for it not to be in the category that it's in which i think was diorama yeah, but it's basically a scratch build, right? Like it's not a diorama constructed out of existing Warhammer miniatures, really. I think there are bits from Gash in there. Yeah, but it's it, it's functionally in the first instance a piece of sculpture, which is a very vampire count yeah. kneeling before Nagash on his in his throne room and behind Nagash. Nagash's throne is made up of what looks like a kind of fountain of like frozen souls, and it just looks amazing. Mm. That is incredible, and then the paint work uh, is. It's so good, you look at it and just accept it immediately. It's like, guess that's what that looks like. That's what that frozen piece of three-dimensional fantasy concept that looks like. Because it's all non-metallic metals, which is where you paint metal by doing all of the shading and the highlighting with matte paints. So it's not yeah. metal. It's not paint with metal um, pigmentation or metallic pigmentation. It's just hand-blended insane it fools, fools the eye completely when yeah. they first glance at it you think oh that's a shiny armor he's wearing then you look at it and it's like wait a minute he's fucking done this a human hand. painted this yeah yeah and it, uh, which is and what the amazing effect that has is that you can look at it from any angle and the light lighting conditions are the same and the kind of um 
the the composure of the shot is the same and it, mm. it has carries the same vibe if you're looking at it from this angle or that angle uh, and it, it creates the same focal points from wherever you're looking at it and the focal point is of course on the gash himself and there's this beautiful gradient on the stone steps where the vampire is kneeling where the vampire is like bathed in like almost like a pillar of light it looks like and if you just look at the texturing texturing on that stone alone I, I would not even know how to start painting it. It's, it's something you said once, um, which was that, like, I, I don't know if it was on the pod or not, but was that, um, like, a lot of miniature painting, a lot of the appeal of miniature painting and the satisfaction of it comes from the fact that it takes away a lot of the hardest parts of, like, true creativity. Hmm. The stuff that remains the preserve of artists is dealing with the blank page, right? Hmm. Like... You know, and this is, this is the interesting thing, right? Cause you can actually draw to a pretty high standard. Mm. I can't. We can both paint to a reasonably decent standard. And that's because for me, the hard part, the thing I can't do, creating something from scratch is taken care of. Mm. And what's left is the technique and the selection of colors and the execution of ideas. It feels like at the highest level of Golden Demon, the artists take over again. <laughs> right. For you sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, like definitely. you get out of the territory of what one person can do with a bit of practice and a pre-made model mm. and into what one person can do with functionally a blank canvas, which yeah. is scratch building. Yeah. And this for me is that it's like, this is a piece of three dimensional concept art created by someone who is a phenomenally talented artist. And that's why I think I kind of joke about it almost not belonging in the same category as mm. like someone painting the Glockin extremely well. Yeah. You know there, there are a lot of those. And, those and there were a lot of extremely good Glockins. Yeah. There's one that stood out, but uh... yeah, we should talk about the amazing Glockin, but, but I bring it up mm. as an example because like, yes, for me, that Nagash thing was sat in a separate thing. Cause it was mm. like, there was, you know, that most, that phenomenal Glockin diorama. The Glockin, if you're not aware, is like a great demon of Nurgle being ridden by like Nurgle sorcerers who are all brothers. That's, mm. that's, you know, as a concept. And a very popular model, it seems, because a lot of different textures, a lot of detail, multiple characters in one large model. For, so for those who are diorama and large model categories, mm. popular it's a choice. Rich, rich choice. But it's definitely a Warhammer model pr- pr- produced by Games Workshop, you know? Yeah. Whereas, um, which someone had painted to an extremely high standard and framed in a beautiful way. That Nagash diorama is not a model produced by Games Workshop. It is a 3D piece of art inspired by characters and themes from yeah. games workshops products mm-hmm. and that that was i mean of course that belongs in that category it belongs to, it deserves to win everything to be honest which it did got the which slayer sword it, which it did um but at the same time there's like almost like a philosophical distance <laughs> right. between it and everything else like yeah it, which is why i really liked the category that was just uh everyone had to paint the same eldar model yeah. uh, and there's a whole category about that, about that because it it gave everyone the same canvas and it took all that away and it said look just execute this in the best way and, and it was really interesting because you, you could look at it very quickly and say that hasn't worked as well as that or, or that's amazing and that's a different level to this and it's amazing how quickly you can just like spot the the quality difference and the execution difference in on that just one model from yeah. when they're all all there in a cabinet uh, and obviously you know it's, it's going to be even easier for the judges who are really seasoned amazing painters at games workshop uh, and th- that was fascinating to me because like there are a couple that i saw in that cabinet that's like those two are just amazing like that's perfect contrast beautiful colors amazing free hand in in the right parts and it's like i i'd love to see which one actually ended up winning uh, but that that gave everyone that level level playing field it said okay if you can't scratch build if you can't sculpt which are incredibly advanced you know artistic techniques that you can't expect the average hobbyist to even attempt mm. really um then enter this and just paint it as well as you can and maybe the single models uh is also a good category for that but then you see people putting that creative sculpting effort into the bases 
Yeah, which do end up being having a huge effect on the model, and that's, yeah, that was interesting. That's exactly, to see. There was a beautifully um, painted Dark Earth Chieftain, who's the barbarian hero from Silver Tower. Oh yeah, saw quite a lot of them. There's a lot of Silver Tower models, yeah, because they're great models. It's great but, to see. Yeah, um, one of them was stood on like a, I guess, like a sort of temple floor base or a ruined floor, mm. but it was elevated maybe three or four inches and that entire four inches was taken up with like a kind of winding cavern system that was underneath him with like dripping stalactites and pools mm. and moss and stuff and so you're almost getting a glimpse into the floor underneath this adventure which is a brilliant idea yeah but it is where that extra creativity is coming through but also a completely different skill set mm. you know right it was really interesting and so that's i guess i'm like and that glock and i keep don't want to keep writing there must be a photo of it somewhere online mm. like so it was, and there were quite a lot of the Glockkin. This one was sort of like bursting through like a graveyard gate hmm. in a forest that was lit in sort of like nocturnal blues and greens, like um, real, you know, as in um, sort of object source lighting, not not just sort of like a piece of art viewed, designed to be viewed from a particular direction with hmm. like a skeleton emerging from a pool of sort of like a slimy pond, which was on the cutaway of the base. So that, you know, the pond was, constructed from some kind of gelatin <laughs> or resin or resin i think people like the, um you layer it uh, there are lots of ways of doing it but you can layer resin until it becomes a glass essentially right you yeah can pr- preserve stuff inside so it. you can peek like through the base to see the skeleton's legs yeah. sort of, like churning up dirt at the bottom mm. of the pool and it's like this is ins- this is madness <laughs> insane, <isn't it? laughs> like, and the clock game was astonishingly well painted i thought um, yeah same it was just it, it it was almost luminous the the colors that it, the bright kind of green almost like a lime green but in the context of this blue dark forest it just kind of uh really came out of it yeah. at you and it's just really smart stuff like on the horns where they've got there's this gradient through from like browns up to uh up to green or reds closer to the glockkin but in the middle in between they had the, the, the blue shine of moonlight on it and if you really look closely it's such an odd combination of colors but when you step back it all just coheres into this instantly uh or it just you just accept it all completely as a scene as a, a frozen moment in time yeah which is the diorama nice. Nice. that's the art of the diorama uh and it was amazing to see what was successful and what was less successful and look at why the kind of it didn't kind of work yeah and it was almost all, always for me about the wider fantasy of the of the model mm. um where you could have a, a couple of like really dark characters dueling but they'd be dueling on like a meadow and there's a tonal contrast there that just doesn't really work or make sense when you look at it um so it's having the fantasy from start to finish throughout the model being consistent and being a, you know this great vision as well as the execution of all those painting techniques and you know yeah really good and that was it that was at the far end of like sheer time miles from this <laughs> right like so we're talking about stuff in the middle because i think i i find it really helpful actually because there was it's not useful to look at things that I could already do. Like, it's nice to see because it's nice to think that you've got a place in this community, mm. but it's not useful really. Like, you know, it's, uh, but what is helpful is seeing things that like look better than what I can do, but have been achieved with techniques that I recognize because mm. there are levels of, of blending expertise and, you know, just technique that with that, with the amazing stuff that, it's just so far ahead of where I am, basically. Mm. That that's, that's definitely worth accepting. Um, like, I think the thing, one of the first things I came away from this year, like part of it was, like you just said, the the right base selection. I really talked about how that's changed the way I felt about my horror heresy stuff. Yeah. The thing I came away from was two realizations. One is I want to 
learn better find line highlighting which is a very specific thing yeah um and the other half of that is i want to get more confident doing bigger contrasts like bigger brighter highlights because mm. i noticed a lot of the models that really popped had like highlights that i wouldn't have considered like not because i wouldn't have thought of it but because i would have dismissed it because mm. i was like no that is too bright like mm. that is that is too much of a of a leap between two colors like maybe particularly since getting a wet palette i've tended to blend a lot and i love doing subtle gradients and things and yeah. that's been a big feature in some of the stuff i've been painting this month and I wouldn't necessarily think to the, the harsh, harsh highlights that you see on this, some of these models that just really pop and look great because of them. The flip side to that is the reason they look good is because they've been achieved with a degree of sort of fine highlighting that I know I struggle with. Mm. And that's helped me recognize something about my own painting that I want to fix, which is that I think because um, my like fine highlighting isn't, that fine really and there's something to do with brush control and paint thickness and things that mm. i just need to get my head around yeah same here. um i tend to rely on sort of more ex expressive brush strokes when highlighting things mm. which i think actually is fine for aos weirdly i think you and i are similar in that we both have quite a brush strokey yeah. painting style mm. um like you can see the brush strokes and that doesn't necessarily even look bad necessarily. I'm not talking about dry brushing. I'm talking about like yeah. having some sort of like concept, like arty, like concept arty feeling models sort of because bit. they've been painted with sort of like yeah. dramatic brush strokes. Painterly kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah. We both could go for that and it's not right for 40 K mm. really. You know what I mean? That's, that's an interesting thing to both hit this yeah, month. Yeah. It's like, mm. and so I've come away from that going like, okay, I want to learn to do this. And that's been a really helpful thing is to go like, I want to just step away and figure out how to do, good sharp line highlights mm. and then my entire game will elevate in a different in a different way yeah so this thing i'll be focusing on this month has been using glazes to create gradients particularly on concave surfaces like stormcast shoulder pads where uh, it actually goes from dark to light imperceptibly um from the dark color to the light color and it's the first time i've actually managed to achieve it on uh, stormcast but it, it takes ages obviously but i could kind of once it semi works you kind of know the how it's supposed to work yeah. so it was like doing it right once it's suddenly uh all it need, all it takes if only you could experience what it's like to do it correctly physically once then it, you'd have that reference point but that's what's so hard to achieve with these models that uh, are, are astonishingly good is that there is no reference point for me about how to achieve mm. the, all those skills and effects and maybe that's where going to like people do classes and stuff like that um there's loads of great resources online and youtube and stuff but it's almost like I have to reach up and take some tuition <laughs> from somewhere to actually gain a level of understanding about how to, how paint works and how to move it around. And yeah, it's, 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 it was very interesting to see Golden Demon. Likewise, I struggle with like that really fine highlighting stuff. I could achieve it easily if it's like a hard edge where yeah. you just do the side brush thing. And that's, it's really easy as long as you're careful. It's the stuff where um, you have to create loads of contrast in a very small space. And that works really well for your eye because it picks out all that detail and it makes it look like suddenly way more detailed than the model even is like the paint the painting accentuates the detail that's already there and that's the stuff i can't do like filigree on the edge of capes that kind of thing you know the stuff that really makes a model look like it's a tiny version of a bigger thing yeah um so yeah i, I took so much away from it i mean it, it's weird because we were only there for a few hours warm fest but i really feel inspired now to 
to yeah, be better. Yeah, same. Like, I just wanted mm. to do more. I think it's a time thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, there's, uh, I loved the Silver Tower uh, diorama piece, which was, it's like a mm. realm gate, and there was a, a, a Lord of Change coming out of it. And uh, there were just three Silver Tower heroes facing off against it. And just the colours, and it, it was, again, it was painted that almost lurid AOS style, which is completely right for Silver Tower. It's yeah. bang on. And it was absolutely gorgeous. And just, it could have been a piece of concept art in the book. Mm. Uh, I'd be amazed, amazed if that didn't win something. It was great. Yeah, it was fantastic. I'm going to have to do proper show notes for this episode, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll be a lot of pictures. Oh, well, it depends how much stuff goes online yet, actually. Yeah, like, true. Worth, like, Surely they'll photograph it. Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll have a dig around, see if I can find any resources for Golden Demon pictures, because, mm. yeah, there's a lot of great stuff. There's a lot on Twitter. Like, um, well, to, to bounce off that into regular pod stuff, what have you been painting this month? What have you been... <laughs> Uh, so I've done two things. I painted up some uh, Vanguard Raptors with long strike crossbows, which are basically the Vanguard snipers, who are like they're huge. They're taller than normal Stormcast. They're taller than Retributors. <laughs> For some reason, they're really tall, but it's because they've got these enormous sniper bows, uh, crossbow things, and they come with like a load of Aether wings. So that's been my project this week. But it's been fairly standard Stormcast painting, but trying to push the blue and stuff and trying to learn mm. that gradient stuff, which I've already described. Uh, the other thing I've been doing is painting scenery. And I really recommend painting scenery if you just kind of want to break from the hard stuff. Scenery is really fun. Like it's yeah. really, really fun to just undercoat something, dry brush it up, and then add some like uh, washes to dirty it up and then dry brush it again, then do some metallics on it. It's just really just satisfying part of painting without all the kind of hard stuff that you get from intricate models. Um, so I'd really recommend if you, if you've got the space to store it is the main barrier, really. Uh, pick, pick up one of GW's relatively uh, affordable uh, scenery kits you can get uh, you get uh, for £10 you can get like a throne thing you can get the vortex that you use Chris for yeah. your corn summoner and then for like 20 quid you can get big terrain sets like the really old terrain sets that they've had for, for like 15 years but they're relatively inexpensive now and the plastic isn't great and it takes work it takes some green stuff but once you've got it together actually painting it and having something on in the background is a really relaxing and nice experience and it mm. looks quite good and um, the fun thing I did this month was uh, kind of kit bash a, a dark ritual gone wrong, a corn ritual gone wrong together from uh, a set of, uh, you get a set of like dark pillars, uh, which comes with like a base. Uh, so I didn't use the pillars on the base. I used the vortex on the base and painted it all up in red, highlighted it all, and then gave it a wash of um, uh, the, what's the blood paint? Blood for the blood god. <laughs> How did I forget that? It's got the word blood in it twice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, once you've laid that over, it looks like a glistening kind of whirlwind of blood. Bloodnado. <laughs> Bloodnado. And then I took uh, some of the Marauders from the starter set, because I'm never going to collect a Concord Force, really. And I stuck them around it as though they're, uh, and then painted them on a stone, as though they'd been turned stone in a mad ritual. And now all their souls are in the Blood Tornado. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is, there's a little kind of weird, very Warhammery story behind it. And it just kind of it looks all right. And it's quite themey. And it makes your models look really good when they're on it. Yeah. Which is the main thing, which is why I've gone with really dark colours for my scenery. It's just so that the models are really the star rather than the scenery itself. Uh, so I, that, that, I felt like that was a success. I was quite pleased with it. Uh, you can, oh, by the way, you, you should follow us. We've got a Twitter account now. Oh, you should. We'll mention this at the end as we'll well. We'll mention it at the end yeah. as well. But we've, uh, at Minis Mon- Monthly, we po- post a load of work in proce- progress stuff that we're working on. So there are pictures out there. There will be some in the show notes. But it's just uh, if you want to keep up with the just silly stuff I'm doing with scenery, then that's a good place to Yeah, work. yeah. And that's, um, it's nice. I mean, it's a really cool diorama scenery piece that you've done because like, I realized that like using it today with, for our skirmish games, which we'll talk about shortly, yeah. I realized that I wasn't really like 
differentiating it in my mind from things like the oculum and the kind of official scenery kits like it kind of feels like it's seamlessly yeah. like into that and and all of that was just having loads of bits of plastic and kind of holding them together and kind of seeing would this work maybe and just kind yeah. of trying to create something different of kind of feeling less uh the problem i've always had since i started the hobby again like more than a year ago is that i've i've been bound into the gw way of painting and doing things so mm. heavily that and I haven't really had the bits to kit bash stuff, but now I've got enough bits around. I feel more confident. I can actually create new things that put my own personal stamp on it. And that's really exciting. That's the thing I'd like to do much more this year, next like year. Like a blood nado. Like a blood nado. And it's just the start of many mad things I'm going to do with bits <laughs> I have in my bits box. I think they'll all be blood nados, Tom. <laughs> Maybe I'll just make loads of them. <laughs> exactly. All scenery is blood nados now. It's great because there's, there's screaming faces in that vortex. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it looks like their souls are actually in there, just endlessly screaming, which is the most corn thing ever. Because they don't <laughs> want to be inside the blood there. No, that's it. Yeah, and it's like, because it's like, actually, even though it's exactly the same piece as my Bellwin vortex. Yeah, it looks really different. Like, yeah. it looks really different because mine is like Starscape. Yeah. Like, kind of, like, Zinchnado. Which really... Starnado. It looks amazing when you put your Gort Summoner on it. Like, there's a continuation of the colors. Yeah, because the, the top color of the tornado is the bottom color of his robe. So, yeah, because the, the idea is, like, I kind of want it to be an extension of him. Yeah. So, like, yeah. yeah. Um, but the corn blood nado does not care for gradients. <laughs> it cares only for blood. Blood for the blood god, not gradients for the gradients god. Absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Like, so my, my month has been, oh, my, my month started out with Thousand Suns, which is the same process I've described already. Um, mm. but since then I decided that I was just going to do the Harlequin's idea that I talked about. So I've done two of them now, sans their bases, which still need doing. Um, and it's been an interesting project because the idea behind them, which I think I spoke about in a previous episode is that I want to do, a Harlequin Shadow or Warband where each Harlequin is different. Um, unifying that has been interesting. Like the whole thing has been really interesting to do, even though I've only painted two and a half models so far. Maybe I'll finish the third by the time this podcast goes up. Mm. Um, but, and it's a three model Warband, but like, um, it's been interesting in a way that doesn't necessarily speak to like techniques I can talk about because it's, it's been a lot about choices of design and style like mm. i said at the time that i wanted to do harlequins but inspired by like 80s cyberpunk art and like modern like you know electronica and art pop stuff that's inspired by the same thing basically mm. um and try and express things in a different way and and like it's really fun to do and i'm pleased with the two harlequins that i've finished and please with my color choices and like a lot of it is just like a lot of it is more on like the design side than the execution side but the flip side to that is it's really made me aware that like this is a strong idea but the idea is as good as my ability to execute it Mm. and i know that a better painter than me could make this amazing and that's that's the thing like i think with some projects like painting a space marine or um you know painting a horus heresy miniature or anything like that there's like there's like a, a ceiling on like how meaningful it is to be just amazing at every possible technique mm. like if you are an amazing freehand painter and you're painting a stormcast provided that you're not doing something completely mad <laughs> There's probably not going to be much difference between you doing it and someone who's just doing, you know, like two yeah. people painting a gold and blue stormcast. It's, you know what I mean? There's going to be like a different thing. Yeah. Whereas because Harlequin supports so much potential freehand mm. and so much potential kind of variation, like I feel like I could return to this idea in 10 years, 15 years if I keep it up and do 
the correct version of it. Mm. So that's been, it's been gratifying to do it to the level I'm capable of doing it. But there's also been like a persistent feeling of like every single skill involved in this from painting gradients to blending to highlights to freehand. I could be better at than mm. I am. And I'm having to kind of accept like, this is as good as I can do this now. Harlequins. Okay. Harlequins are hard mode though. Like it is, by, yeah. by any standards that, that army is, is the hardest to paint in the 40k range. Like bar none yeah. for sure, given that their whole thing is crazy circus freehand forever. Yeah. Uh, and really so, tough. and I've done some freehand. Like mm. I, I'm kind of pleased with the freehand I've done. The lines aren't as sharp as I would like them. They don't look like the picture in my marine, mm. but the effect is there. And, and so, um, to the extent that we still do like tips and stuff, mm. like I, you know, I have learned stuff. Like it's, it's still progress. It's just that it's not the satisfying progress of I have painted a space marine and it is comparable to other space marines. Right. It's more like I painted a harlequin and this is mine. Mm. And like, um, and there are deliberate things like I, you know, and I've learned things about different choices. So like I've done there, the two I've done so far have monomolecular blades and masks that I'm doing half in glass and half in like ceramic. And a lot of the work has been in bringing out different materials. Right. And so I started using things like odd stuff, which is like almost gloss varnish, basically to bring out glass and trying to paint black glass that is kind of illuminated from within, but with like contrasting colors. Mm. That's fucking hard. Yeah, and I've gotten like some of the way there, mm. but obviously you could just be a million times better at that and it would just be better. Mm. Um, and, um, the, you know, like one of the Harlequins, one of the Harlequins has a decent amount of freehand on it. The other one doesn't, but deliberately because I wanted to make it look like it was sort of shifting between colors. So it's one that starts with, it's one I posted a picture of, but the picture's quite dark. So you can't really see this, but it's, it's, it's a, it's one kind of contiguous gradient from green through purple to orange mm. individually highlighted, which I'm pretty pleased how it comes out. I think it's a cool looking model on the table, but it's like that, even that idea could be so much better. My kind of tip, if I was going to do a tip for this month, is um pencils pencils are okay mm. you're allowed pencils like yeah, interesting so i did a a kind of mad geometric line pattern for the chest of one of the harlequins uh, which has come up pretty well i think but that started with me drawing it on the model in very fine pencil so mm. i knew where to put the ink oh sorry to put the paint because when you're trying to because freehanding straight lines like this is a pattern made of triangles like freehanding paint straight lines is hard enough as it is without also trying to maintain the even distance between lines and stuff like that and pencils are great for that mm. and i found that the paint has gone on i mean it helps that i think i was doing black over white so the gray pencil line gray silvery pencil line vanished under the black paint yeah but um, using pencils as a basis for freehand, like I always thought it would be heresy to take a pen or a pencil to a model in order to plan something out. But actually this month I've kind of seen the benefit of it. And I think I will keep doing that for any freehand I do. And because I find it much easier to draw with a pencil, I've, that's going to make me a little bit braver with freehand, I think generally. Yeah. I can sort of block things out a little bit and sort of figure out ways of, of, of making that happen. Mm. Yeah. Right. I guess your tip for this month, Tom, is terrain is fun. Terrain is fun. Uh, if you're going to paint a blood tornado, uh, do all the kind of highlights and lowlights as red and orange and don't kind of layer it over any other colours because it's very transparent. And if you use whites, it'll just be pink. Yeah. Uh, so paint it like you'd paint fire, I would say, and then put blood over it and then it will it will have yeah. all the kind of highlights and lowlights that you want. Interestingly, I've done, also done like 
three different kinds of highlighting red this month. And red is a surprisingly hard color. Weird, to isn't it? Yeah. It's weird. It's like, I've, I struggle with purple as well. Um, cause purple goes up to gray. And if you go to, if you just mix purple with white, you, it can look pink. If the highlight's too strong, like your eye looks at it and he thinks it looks like pink. Um, whereas weirdly, like the most successful I had with purples on my Veritant, where on the back of the cloak, it goes from an orange to purple as though it's like a sunrise with stars on it. Mm. Then on the front of the cloak, I use the same like orange to edge highlight. You don't edge highlight purple with orange, but it just works. It's really strange. It's almost like the contrast deepens the purple around it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the, some colors are just quite weird. I agree. Red is a, is a weirdly hard one so, to, like, to use. Um, so yeah, like one of my, cause there's red in three different instances of my Holocron. One is mm. as a basis for red. Um, but it's like red cloth and I want to do like velvet. So the highlight isn't extreme. It's a very soft highlight on, mm. on red. Um, and then there's red leather, which highlights up to pink because, um, or like red PVC almost where it's like very matte, except where it's not. And then it's very bright because mm. it's a shiny material. Yeah. And then it's red as a basis for orange. So it goes up to orange quite sharply, but it kind of still has a dark red base. That you don't even think of because you think it's orange, but mm. it's a, doing a purple into orange gradient goes through red mm. kind of rather than through. Uh, pink or blue you know sort of goes um and then the interesting one was um those two glass swords i wanted to do both of them with contrasting colors that are shared with the other model like the amount of thinking i've had to do about how the colors relate to each other so that all of them that they look different but they look like they're part of the same unit but not because they all share a spot color or anything like that like um it's nuts stuff but like so the miniature that has predominantly red and blue coloring in its work its sword is the the contrasting like lights inside its glass sword are purple and green because mm. they're completely different to the colors on the model but the other model has green and purple in its base colors because that's one of the gradients but it has red and blue in its sword so they kind of trade colors across right. the two models and this is maybe completely overthinking everything but it's mm. kind of what i've been up to and trying to figure out because i wanted like that really pretty fashionable at the moment like hard red and blue neon lights inside the sword Mm. and then i realized that you actually don't i found it looked best if i don't highlight the red up to pink but highlight it straight from red to white right weirdly so it's almost like red slightly lighter red white Mm. and then you get that kind of um neon red kind of thing we almost need the suggestion of red under white and it looks red like it's kind of an interesting yeah it's really strange and i think it's definitely been interesting seeing how highlights affect the color that they're highlighting and can completely change the color that you're highlighting so if you overdo the purple and orange highlighted thing i was painting some aether wings pretty experimenting with colors really and uh, i painted like the the outer wings uh as purple and it's quite a deep purple um then highlighted it edge highlighted it with orange just for an experiment and it looks burgundy <laughs> Yeah. It changes the whole look to burgundy, just straight away. Just that th- those two colors together, it almost your mind mixes it into this new color, uh, which is insane. <laughs> yeah, I just I need to read a book about color theory to you know understand what really happens when you're looking at colors and how your brain really processes mm-hmm. it, uh, and that gets applied to miniatures again in a completely different way. Because are you are you trying to create a sense that it is just a very tiny version of um, a, a much larger thing? Like, do you do lighting in that way, or or do you just kind of yeah? I don't know. There's, there's so many different approaches to it. It's insane. That's going to come up in our question section, I think. Ah, uh, right. That cool. exact idea. Hmm. What we should do quickly, I think maybe we'll have a little bit less substantial battle report this month. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a few quick games. But but it's worth talking about, which is the other thing that's come out recently, which is Age of Sigmar Skirmish. We've had um, 
a couple of questions in the past, including, I think, recently about playing Age of Sigma with a smaller number of, number of models. Mm. And that is what they have released this weekend, um, is a very small booklet um, for six quid, which is sort of a rule supplement called Skirmish, um, which provides sort of basically um, alternative army construction um, and a few new rules for playing battles with extremely small forces where each individual model moves independently. So like a kind of Necromunda or Mordheim style warband along with uh, six new scenarios and a kind of campaign to thread them together and sort of advancement mechanics so that you gain XP essentially in mm. or renown as it's called in each individual scenario that you then reinvest in um, your warband. And so it's not as substantial as something like Shadow War, but it is quite um, quite a big step from where AOS was in terms of supporting this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I know that there were fan-made things that did some of this work already. Um, the other flip side to it is it's set in Shadespire, which is the city in the realm of death that's also the setting for Shadespire, which is the uh, the new sort of standalone small miniatures count kind of competitive focused tactics game coming out in the future yeah. at some point. So um, that's the top level view. So the way we approached it is we just threw together warbands to get today following the campaign rules to the letter uh, and played the first two missions of a six mission campaign. Mm. And it's really interesting actually, like quite a lot to yeah. take away from it. I think one thing that stood out to us both is the initial um, points cost limitation for a campaign. So the idea is you play to a 50 points. If you, um, if you're building a warband for uh, like a one-off game, but for a uh, campaign, you begin at 25. And that's really incredibly limiting because mm. there are two rules that, that really lock you in. One is that you need to have a hero to be your leader. And the other is that you need to have a minimum of three models. And so we both thought, like, this is broken. This doesn't work at all because essentially the points cost for a given model in Skirmish is they have their own points values, but the way they're calculated is pretty much Whatever the points cost is for the unit in AOS divided by the minimum of number of models in that unit to get the per model value and then divided by five. So a Stormcast Liberator is four points, like a Zangor is, is four points, a Kyrak Acolyte is three points, a Blue Horror is one point because when you divide it that many times you get down really low. Yeah. But a Hero is one model. So it's basically just the points value divided by five. So it means that your average hero is between like 16 and 24 points, um, which means that to get a hero and two, at least two other models into 25 points, you have to take a cheap hero. The cheapest hero. The cheapest hero normally. Yeah. yeah. So for example, like I really wanted to take um, kind of the equivalent of a chaos sorcerer Lord, but that's 24 points. So I actually can't do it because there's no way for me to spend that remaining one point on two more models to fit into the warband. Mm. So my starter warband, which felt very small, was a Gaunt Summoner at 20 points, a Zangor at 4 points, and one Blue Horror at 1 point. Whereas you started with the Relictor... Lord Relictor and two Liberators, who are the the baseline hammer troops for Yeah, so like 16 points, 4 points, and 4 points. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so it's, it's hyper-restrictive, but actually now having played two scenarios and leveled up between that scenario and added stuff, it mm. feels 
right, actually. Yeah, it's it's good. I, I think those higher points values for heroes exist for like match play. If you want to just sit down and say, let's play 100 points yeah. skirmish, then you could have a Veritan or something more expensive be your um, be your leader. So shall we talk through what happened to us first or shall we talk through the rules in abstract first? Yeah. What, what do you reckon? Because I, I think... What happened to us was also us kind of figuring out things that would and wouldn't work for us as well. Because we wanted to follow the rules pretty closely, but at the same time... Yeah, you want to see how it works. And there, there might be some things you might want to house rule, I think, particularly yeah. around mortal wounds and banning certain characters. So yeah, because <laughs> like the first scenario um, is supposed to represent the, the two... Because uh, we are sort of treating this as part of the ongoing story of our AOS and our AOS armies. Mm-hmm. So like this is my gaunt summoner investigating this kind of mysterious ruin in the realm of death, Shadespire looking for something zinch stuff mm. and your relic to own it's kind of appropriate that a lord relic is there because they have a connection to the realm of death mm. you know as a kind of small f- splinter of your as your the rest of your stormcast army is fighting probably the rest of my army somewhere in a different realm yeah over books or whatever <laughs> there's this other skirmish happening and that first battle is supposed to represent the moment the two sort of warbands find each other and so the deployment is kind of randomized into which quadrant of the board you find yourself in, in this kind of like cluttered ruin where you used your new terrain and kind of mm. created a little cluttered ruin. It's a night fight, isn't it? And your troops become slightly dispersed by traveling together in this pitch darkness. Yeah. And they get separated and different troops appear in different parts of the board. And, um, and also like the range of spells and this didn't really affect us much, but the range of spells and ranged attacks is limited to 12 inches on the first turn, 18 inches on the second round round, sorry, not turn. And then, lifted after that which is representing the sun rising yeah so like it's dark and then it gets to light and that's what affects your ranges um and that first game even with a small number of units was actually pretty interesting and super close yeah it was like we started with one of your liberators kind of bumping into my gaunt summoner and horror and just getting annihilated by arcane bolts and the ability to throw out d3 mortal wounds into a two wound miniature he was just gone like yeah. first round like, yeah incinerated um, but then, and then my Zangor happened to show up next to your relicter and charge him and die in combat. No, he got electrocuted to death, I think. Yeah, I think there was a round of combat and then, uh, the relicter waved the giant corpse he carries on a stick and then lightning hit the Zangor and turned him to dust. Indeed. And then there was this sort of cagey kind of dance around the middle of the board, mm. uh, between my surviving Gaunt Summoner and one blue horror and your liberator and relicter as they sort of advanced on the, on the, ruin in the center of the board and mm. i kept my distance and used the blue horror to screen the gaunt summoner um and it came down to a combat which is pretty tense and i managed to kill the liberator but then lose the horror mm. and then it came down to essentially just a, a fight between the gaunt summoner and the relicter in melee combat which has a sort of cool thematic potential it did feel a little bit like it came down to die slightly because mm. the gaunt summoner's melee weapon if it hits and wounds and i roll and then I can beat your bravery on two dice. Um, you die immediately. Yeah, it's 10 plus on two dice. Yeah. It would have been tough. It would have been tough. Um, but I didn't even get through your armor, like, ever. So mm, I think, no, I, think I was going to lose same. in, yeah. in melee combat. But then, it's um, only one attack as well, that's yeah. the thing. Yeah. So you won the first one with the major victory. Yeah. Um, and we went on to... Um, like spend our stuff and boost up our warband and we both made like completely opposite decisions <laughs> yeah yeah because so i like i added a zangor because they're good and they had multiple wounds um but also but then spent the rest of the points that i got because we both get points you got more points than i did because of the fact that you won um and then i spent the rest on blue horrors just to kind of bulk it up like have more 
more more focus on the board yep. and you did the opposite thing yeah so i had 12 round points spare and i decided to spend all of them on one of my new vanguard raptors long strikes the snipers i referred to earlier that i've been painting up this month just because i wanted to use the shiny new model i had um but also it's got a very good shooting attack uh only one shot a turn so there's that chance to miss but it hits on two plus wounds and it's a 36 inch range as well uh i think it's 30 inches if you stand still it's oh. 24 of your moves but then you can move um like five so that's a weird rule uh he uh yeah so it's like rend two damage two so it's gonna one shot pretty much anything uh, any normal thing chris has on the board the general obviously will survive uh but yes yeah, basically a sniper this enormous gold armored sniper with a bird who yep. talks to him <laughs> and tells him where the guys are to kill spot a bird he's yeah his big blue spot bird. bird yeah great model. um yeah, it's a great model. So, I've, um, yeah, so I had warband size of four. So I had two liberators, relicter, and a sniper, and then your warband was like seven, right? Six, six. I right. also got a caracathlete as well. So I got, yeah. I had a gaunt summoner, two zangor, caracathlete, and three blue horrors. Yeah, and then we looked at the second scenario, and it was like, <laughs> here are five objectives. You need models near them to try and activate them uh, to find treasure in them. Yeah, uh, and it kind of implied that you wanted to be exploring a lot of them because only on a six would you discover the treasure and it would become an objective i only had four models <laughs> yeah so i thought well, it was fuck. super interesting <laughs> like, I was like what <laughs> that scenario is actually really cool that scenario um, is great yeah so it's supposed to submit the two warbands having now encountered each other they're now um like competing to find the treasure in the ruins like mm. searching for treasure and so the way it works is there are five functionally five objectives which are one in the center and then four more at compass points around it on the board if you have a model within three inches of one of those objectives at the end of your movement phase, you roll a dice and on a six, you find a relic there. And all that does is activate that, uh, you know, search area as an objective. Yeah. And all that matters is whoever controls the most objectives at the end of five rounds. So mm. there's no, like you don't score them between rounds. You're not getting points as you go. Yeah. And you don't even get the relics that you find. It's it's like it's a bit like the four places of power mm. um, match play scenario for AOS proper, where it's all about splitting your forces between multiple control points. But the the control points don't appear except on a roll of a six, so you don't know which ones are going to be control points, which is a huge deal. Really interesting, yeah. And so, um, and then it creates a strategic decision between trying to move forces up to capture the things you know are control points and we'll get on to how this played out versus going to the unoccupied spaces to try and create a control point but only another one in six chance right and you only got you know there's five rounds and so therefore you're going to have five movement phases mm. therefore there is a for a given faction you only got five chances of making a one in six yeah so but then it's really interesting because uh the central objectives the three kind of that cuts the board in half centrally they're going to be kind of pinged more because both forces will have greater access to those. Yeah. So it's almost like they're more likely to become the objective points. But if you camp back with, say, a sniper and just keep trying to score a, a rear objective, then that's a valid thing to do because if it comes off, suddenly the enemy's out of position. Yeah. It's really, really great. So sniper. the way that game started is I I had a plan, which was I was going to split because I had more people mm. to ping things. Yeah. And then depending on where the first objective spawned, I was going to then sort of like consolidate around that because control of an objective is determined by the amount of bodies nearby. Yeah. So suddenly all of those cheap blue horrors have a big role to play. Um, and like, uh, you know, right at the beginning of the game, it's quite cagey. Like neither of the side objectives that I was closest to 
uh, came off straight away and neither did yours. Mm. And as on that first turn, you brought up your crossbow. I could see what you were aiming for, yeah. which was literally the game. Go on, summoner. So he moved back behind a wall. Mm. Very <laughs> so, sensible. Yeah. So you couldn't see him mm. um, just because I knew I had to kind of keep my big guns in reserve. There's a really cagey start to the fight over the first few rounds where nothing had been activated and we were just sort of positioning and getting angles on each other. Really cool kind of maneuvering in a war game. Yeah. More, more, maybe more tactical than we've had in AOS previously, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then after that, I can't remember which one got activated first. So you ran. Yeah, I, I, so I made this decision, like the same turn that I was going to, I ran the Gaunt Summoner behind a wall. Mm. Um, I made a play for the middle and I still don't know if it was the right decision. I thought maybe I would try and, cause I thought it was like I had a numbers advantage. I might try and force a fight. Cause if I can wipe you out, I just win. Mm. So like, um, I just, I, I just had to do a, a run with my Karak Acolyte. And I was thinking about running in behind cover. I got a good run as well. I rolled like a five, so he can run 11 inches. Yeah. And I thought, no, I'm going to put him in the middle. And then I rolled for the, th- at that point, I controlled three objectives. So, uh, and both of the side ones didn't come off, but then the middle one did. Mm. And that changed the complete fabric of the game. Because yeah. suddenly the biggest objective, which is in the middle of the board, is like a live objective. Mm. And we can all fight over it. And so I knew you'd have to make a beeline there. And actually at that time, that really fitted my plan because I thought, well, okay, well, this will force the fight. Yeah. Like you will have to come to the middle. I have, I have units on either side of it. And so I can, I can just get there quickly, right? We've got two turns of shooting. I should be able to kill a liberator every turn for the God Summoner at least. Mm. Like I felt like I might, might well have it that at that point. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, then it was super interesting, like how it panned out from there. Yeah. So I, I moved up. Uh, like once that happened, I moved my forces forwards and stopped trying to cap the rear point. Um, but I kept one guy on the side point close to me, so I was kind of contesting two. Uh, you had to be within three inches to roll that dice and try and get a six and activate it as an objective. Uh, so the rector moved forward so that he was, his 12 inch lightning blast move was going to hit stuff on the other side of the objective, the building basically. Um, then I moved the long strike sideways closer to a different objective so that he could potentially score it, but also giving him really good sight lines across the battlefield. And what was really cool about the way he worked was that it changed the way Chris played so much, which is how snipers work. Like, like if someone's got a sniper lines on a, a street or something, like people don't go there. Like it's area control just simply through threat. It's really cool uh, to see how well that worked and how much you had to think about it as a, as a threat. Because I could one-shot any sub-hero character on the board. Yeah. Which In I hindsight, I, I should have sent the Gaunt Summoners after him in a straight line. So just yeah. chased him. Like. Yeah. Good, because he's he's only got one shot and he's two plus to hit and does two damage. There's, there's every chance that Gaunt Summoner would close enough to get his Arcane Bolt off and finish him perhaps. But it's all theoretical. It's hard to tell because I, I did like a couple of libs screening him uh, and the libs did drop a little bit eventually, but uh, you'd have had to go through them in an early stage of the fight. Uh, but anyway, I was moving to basically semi-contest the centre while also keeping an eye on the side thing. Mm. Uh, and uh, I, the game swung in the moment where I rolled a six on that side objective. Yes, yeah, so suddenly that was a live objective as well. Yes, and suddenly it was possible to score two points by being within three inches of both the central objective and that one. Yeah, like so the the two liberates, like I knew it wasn't there wasn't really point in going after the relicter. It takes too mm. long to kill. Yeah, I wanted to outnumber him on the middle. Mm. And then kill everything else. So I'd score the middle. Yep. You wouldn't have anyone on the side. And we're done. Yeah. Basically. Um, what happened was, so there was, um, both, so early on, uh, the, the long strike did snipe one of the 
Zangle. Zangle, yeah. Yeah, which was like, that will happen, right? Because mm. it does yep. two damage, so just dead. So, um, the sort of Gaunt Summoner shooting and shooting from the Karakakalite managed to kill both Liberators. Yep. Um, and then I'm trying to think of the exact ordering of events. So there were a few kind of crucial things. I moved all the Blue Horrors up to contest the middle with mm. the Karakakalite. Karakakalite got incinerated by the Relic there. Yep. In a big way. Oh, yeah. Um, the Blue Horrors couldn't really do anything other than be there. Like, I think the biggest mistake you made in the game was charging the Relic to with the Blue Horrors. I think maybe. You, I think you win if you don't do that. Because if you move them round back where the Gaunt Summoner was and camped there and forced me to come onto you, and I could fail charges. I didn't charge them. You charged them. Um, they failed their charges. But, but, okay, so... Yeah, I could have moved them back, Exactly. You, you you were well within my charge range, so you basically moved into right. combat. Right, yeah, no, you're right, yeah. So if you'd have clustered around your... There wouldn't be a huge amount I could have done about it. Um, I don't think... It, I think you would have got there, because, maybe like... so. I think, like, even how many... So, essentially, like, what happened... Partly because I wanted to... I think what I should have done is fed you them one at a time to screen you a bit. Yeah, maybe just pin them down. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I sort of took a chance on trying to get the wounds through, but that just didn't happen. Mm. Um, there was, um, a big, uh, well, I'll tell you the one thing that I didn't expect to happen was, um, the other Zangor, the one with the shield got one shot because you got a, a six on the long. Oh yeah. That's the thing you can do. Yeah. If you roll six to hit, he does two mortal wounds straight off. Yeah. Which is and- death to any. Yeah, and that was a huge. I mean, actually, and, and the Zangor's shields even have a save against mortal wounds, but mm. it's only on a six, right? So it just didn't come off, and yeah. that was a big deal because I wasn't expecting to lose him that quickly. Because mm. I was keeping the Zangor's in front, because even though if the long strike goes through, I can keep putting more Mystic shields on them and keep them up, and then losing him put me in a position where I needed to kill the long strike and then contest the center mm. with the Gaunt Summoner. But unfortunately, um, my arcane bolt got, it was out of range for one thing, and then it got cancelled, mm. uh, got dispelled. It was actually the only dispel you got off in two, de- in two games. Yes, it's true. I, I, my relative took an artifact. You could choose artifacts for your heroes that give them certain abilities, and it gives them a dispel. And it was first, it was vital one as well. The arcane bolt's really good in the, in the game when you've got individual heroes, like yeah, deep wounds is very, very good. So I was glad I had the opportunity to do that. And then the, uh, that game, and then again, there was a sort of a combat phase where if I hypothetically get the, um, no, we didn't even bother with the combat phase actually, cause it was basically over. <laughs> yeah. Cause, it, yeah. Cause, um, you managed to, the relic managed to kill all of the blue horrors in melee. Um, at which point the blue horror and the gaunt summoner were both on that central objective. Mm. So they cancel each other out. No one controls it. Yeah. But that long strike was still on the, the side objective, side objective which had activated. activated yeah yeah uh which means you won by one point to zero but because um it doesn't matter the magnitude of the victory doesn't matter it's still a major victory yeah. because yeah. you get one and i get none so mm. yeah rough one that was actually it was really interesting because again i thought my numbers advantage meant a lot and actually i think you're right that having the blue horrors in a position to get meleeed one after another was mm. the thing however i thought i was going to i thought i was going to kill the long strike basically right um and that's when that didn't happen because mm. i mean i was going to the plan was to run the zangor and the gaunt summoner and i think just losing that zangor in one shot really threw me yeah i mean he killed two things in a five round game which is about right for what he does yeah so true. I, mean, I don't think there's anything in balance the only literally the only mistake we made is there's supposed to be uh, there's a table that you consult uh, based on the points differential because obviously in a game where you get a random number of points mm. based on whether you win or lose and, and some other factors, 
um, the amount that you're behind by, you get a certain number of rerolls. Yeah. And I, luckily, I don't think it would have made a difference in that game. I think so. But um, the, the reason that I, I thought about it, well, I we completely forgot to do it in the second game. We did it in the first game. Yeah. And it didn't help you. No. Because <laughs> you were one point behind me and I was three points, points behind you in the second game. Um, but there was one role where the Gaunt Summoner, because his Mystic Shield, Mystic, sorry, uh, Arcane Bolt failed, hypothetically, he can still kill the long strike with his ranged attack because it does mm. do three damage. Right. And I rolled a two on the three up to hit. And that was when I realized I should have a reroll and I don't have it. Mm. So I didn't use it because we'd forgotten to do it at the beginning of the game. But that was one of those things where it's like, that was a minor thing, but like, yeah, I don't, think, still, I don't the, think it would have made a difference. There's still to wound. You still got four plus yeah. save. I think fund, fundamentally I still lost it because of a bad call on range, basically, with the Gaunt mm. Summoner. Like, I don't think I should have hidden him when I, we were moving your crossbow man into position. I should have... He's very resilient. Kept... Six wounds, isn't he? Five. Oh, not that resilient. <laughs> What's his save? Uh, six. So he doesn't have one against on strikes? No. Well, that, you, I think you're right to hide him. <laughs> no, I should have just run him at you. Okay. Because I, I should have just run him at you because, like, you have a couple of targets there. I should have made you have to pick between mm-hmm. them because as it was like i thought i'd give you one uh zangor that you could still see and move the others up behind cover and mystic shield the only one you could see so i could try and control the damage output yeah but the damage output is so high that it's still i like i still have the six up save mm. and you know and then it didn't work and i thought oh the shield one will last a bit longer and i guess it was a swingy thing that i couldn't anticipate that they were going to suddenly become mortal wounds yeah but still I should have, I should basically, I should have just thrown everything at you, I think, rather than be quiet yeah. about it. It's interesting. It's a, it's a tough fight for you in a straight fight. That's the trouble. I think the Stormcast is just very good at Skirmish because they're so resilient. Having those two wounds each is a huge deal. Uh, those Angle do as well. Yeah. Behind I mean, the I think I, say, yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. Like, I've got, I, I've seen what I can afford with the points I did get from that game. Yeah. And I now know I will build around what you've got, which is really nice. Like, that's how it those work, games are yeah. so short. Like, we played two of them, but you probably play all six of them in a, day afternoon yeah i think you get through them in an afternoon yeah quite easily and that's a really exciting thing because actually i really like the idea of like i know what i'm going to add to that warband now and it will help a a lot Mm. and that's in direct response to what you've spent most recently and so that's almost like Mm. an interesting i really like the idea of that interplay and and like you said earlier it's a it's a cool way to potentially trial out new armies if you don't want to commit to loads of models Mm. like i might do that as my corn outlet as well yeah you concept concept up a skirmish band and it will work really well. I love that um, that second scenario. I think you could play it endlessly and it would produce interesting tactical decisions. I think it's the, one of the best scenarios I've played in AOS. Full stop. Same, I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, uh, really, really good stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what the more advanced ones are. I think there are six, aren't there? Yeah, book. yeah. So yeah, we, we play through like, yeah. And even though like I've lost two in a row, and therefore you've got more points twice in a row, I don't really feel like I'm out yet. Like, no, I think I've got. I think scenarios might favour me in a way, but also like. I can get different units in there and the weight of numbers will add up and, yeah. and that's a, a meaningful thing as well. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating quite to finish that campaign. I do think um, there are, I do have some, one thing I want to talk about. So yeah, now that we're talking about how the game panned out, I'd like to kind of discuss quickly, like they have made some interesting decisions about what doesn't and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't exist in that mode. So there mm. are points values for the different grand alliances and because of the, the strict points restriction obviously you're limited on what you can take anyway but also some units just haven't been given just haven't been given point values outright right presumably because they'd be too overpowered the one i was disappointed about is i kind of wanted to take the ogro thaumaturge as my mm. general hypothetically when we were thinking about it because we've established now that him and the relic to have a long running rivalry yep 
However, he's completely banned. And I think the reason for that is probably twofold. One is he does mortal wounds when he charges, which could probably be completely bro- broken in a game where you're charging individual units, mm. in, sorry, individual models, not units. Um, but the other side of it is he regenerates wounds every time, which I think could also be a huge deal. So I get, yeah, maybe he's too good. Uh, I was I was a bit weird up. The Chaos Sorcerer Lord is also gone. He has like a buff aura that might be seen as too powerful. Mm. Um, so I was actually quite limited in my hero choice. It's literally just the Gone Summoner, like because everything else I had was banned. I wonder if their logic wasn't um, like these things are too hard. It's more that I think the the things in there are limited stuff you could buy in plastic in a shop. Agrothymatage is in a booster pack oh, by himself. No. So is the Gone okay. Summoner. So I thought, I thought the, they were in so there. So is the Chaos Sorcerer Lord. So is the no, like shitloads well, of the stuff is banned. Uh, all the resin models are banned. That's just a flagpole okay. anyway. But yeah. um, so that is okay. But no, like all See, of them, like yeah, the Thomas Edge is in a booster pack. So booster that, pack, yeah. Oh, when did they bring those out? I thought they were all silver tower exclusive. No, they came all came out with the Zinch Arcanite wave. Oh right, I missed that. Fair enough. Yeah, that's a few months ago. Good. Um, the one that I think we both realised, like, holy shit, don't do this because mm. it seems anti fine. And I'm amazed, genuinely amazed, that it's in the game. Is the Heralder? Yes, this is the Stormcast Horn Blast unit, and he just targets a piece of scenery within five inches, and you can move and shoot and do this. Uh, and it, you roll a dice, and anything within that dice roll, inches-wise, that takes a hit suffers D3 mortal wounds. Um, so it's guaranteed one damage to anything within D6 inches of a train piece. And on a 4x4 four four board with a large piece of train in the middle, that's going to be a lot of the board. And a lot of the things in the game have one wound. So it's just insta-kills. Yeah. <laughs> like, so much stuff in the game. So, like, suddenly, like, I mean, I've always thought that was a little bit strong in the game anyway. And I say that as an army with a no, lot of one-wound I think models. it's fine in the game. I think it's because, um, yeah, I think it's fine in the game. Yeah. I think it's strong, but, it's, you know. I guess I think I'm in a position to not enjoy it. And the reason for that is because one, you don't have to roll dice to see if it happens. Mm. And like almost every other spell in the game is at least some chance that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Whereas it is pointed a piece of terrain, that piece of terrain honks so loudly people die. Yes. But I think the other thing is that like, um, I, I you know, uh, as we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, um, shooting is up costed quite a lot mm. in AOS. And that leaves a lot of Zinch units in a weird position. I'd be interested to see what gets rebalanced in the next General's Handbook, mm. where they're upcosted quite a lot because they have shooting, but they're fucking rubbish. <laughs> um, because they're a horde unit. So like Pink Horrors, for example, which, or like they're upcosted for kind of interesting reasons, which is like Pink Horrors are wizards and can shoot, but yeah, they're I also, think, I think they're well costed. They uh, do all sorts of things. They, yeah, they're but they're flexible. still, but they're, yeah, but they're super versatile, but they're still like one wound models where if you think about mm-hmm. sort of units, like obviously they'd be insane if they had more than one wound, but it means that I think, and, and this is not to say that the Herald is overpowered so much as it's a real problem for me mm. because I tend to have like a lot of things that can't always just avoid being near a wall right. or a hill or something like that. Yeah. And it means a lot to lose them. Whereas if you're, your big unit of liberators or whatever takes a bunch of wounds from a heralder blast. Um, they're probably not going to all die. Hmm. Whereas literally for me, it's the potential of losing like an entire 140 point unit from a thing that can't fail. They can only kill three things a turn. And what? You know, how, how can it? It's D3 on my unit. I thought it was D3 per model. No. no. Oh shit. That's why I thought it was so broken. Yeah, no, no, it's never been. Uh, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. It's good against heroes, obviously, for that reason. So you're going yeah, to. Okay, no, that is fine then. Sorry. I was, yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. it was, I thought it was within that many inches. But every it, model took. I think in skirmish it is because every model counts. Yes. Unit, okay. Which yeah. is why it's completely broken. Right. Yeah. No, I'm completely with you now. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was D3 per model with. No, no, range because no, no. that, that was the thing I thought was insane was that like turns every potential terrain piece into a nuclear it's bomb it's very good against stuff like the Gaunt Summoner on a, a Vortex you just blast it but uh, so it's good against heroes and stuff like that and it, you're gonna if you're fighting a heralder on the board you have to think about where your heroes are in relation to 
um, walls, pieces of train, hills, the, the puddles, you know, yeah. anything that really counts as scenery. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's too overpowered. There's no, no actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'll have to get back. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> back. He's, oh God. He's going to kill us all. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, um, the, um, um, yeah, no, I totally did at the back, actually. I just, I genuinely thought, like. In skirmish, it's fucked, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's fu- I, that's why I'm amazed that he's pointed out. Yeah, I, I think, um, I think maybe it's the whole thing where, you know, players have a conversation with each other. And if you think something else on the other side is just going to be break the whole experience, you just agree not to ever take it. I'm never going to take our old door. It's just going to ruin the whole campaign. Um, yeah. Other stuff seems, most of it seems fine, though. Um, I was worried about Mortal Wounds before we started playing, but the fact it's such a quick, high lethality, uh, game, it's fine actually i think it's fine mm. it's like i mean also they don't always come off mm. against because the spells and be because um uh like you sometimes get a one on that mortal runes thing and it's great when something has one health but like if it doesn't then like they can still kill things just as well yeah on half health yeah no i, I am you, you're completely right like i'm wrong because i didn't misunderstood how the herald worked because I, I just I, my experience of him has been he honks and everything dies yeah it's normally uh i mean I've, i use it to kill your heroes a lot and yeah. it, it's that auto one damage is really good. It is really good. I just don't think it's overpowered. Necessarily. No, I think, I think there's a, I think there's a psychological thing and this doesn't make it overpowered about having any ability that doesn't have a chance to fail. Right. In a game where hmm. almost all forms of mortal wounds come from a dice roll. Hmm. I think even if the Heralder thing was a two up, that would make it feel <laughs> maybe less. So. I think there's something about having your opponent. This is a, this is an AOS thing, not a skirmish thing. Something about having your opponent just sort of say, that's gone now. And this is gone now. Yeah. That is like a negative play experience. Mm. Um, not in a huge way, not in a kind of like, and we're in the game forever kind of way. Just it's a design point. It's, it's one of the reasons rolling dice can be exciting is because like, I'm going to attempt this. Let's see if it happens. Yeah. Versus, and now I, you have activated my trap card, which in this case was standing within, Near a thing. <laughs> within six inches of a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob Simes, who does uh, Warhammer TV, uh, he, is doing a doubles tournament that's coming up and he's been saying on stream that he's building uh, a doubles uh army that has six heraldos in it <laughs> just to see if he can break it <laughs> just yeah. to see if you really can just and I, I think it's at that point that the lack of a dice roll mm. actually matters because suddenly if 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 it was a dice roll even if it was a two up hmm. only five of those six heralders on average is going to blow up a terrain piece <laughs> yeah and uh, again it's uh, they're a hard counter to silverneth who their whole thing is putting down enormous woods that they have to stand in to get all their bonuses and then just a herald or turns up oh, <laughs> i think it's a combination of no chance to fail and a fundamentally silly mental image. <laughs> yeah it's very silly actually <laughs> it's almost as silly as the uh lord Celestine on foot for the stormcast who has a hammer cape and he swishes the cape and hammers fly out of it and kills yeah. things around him. <laughs> maybe the maybe the stormcast are silly they're very very silly <laughs> i've embraced this yeah yeah no you, you are right though i don't think it's i don't think it's busted in the base game possibly unless you have six of them hmm. But yeah, I we'll think, see. <laughs> see how Rob Simes does at that tournament. <laughs> we'll see. I think it'd be, it'd be really interesting if they had to remove the terrain piece, which would be fluffier. That would be because cool. the idea yeah, is that yeah. they are blowing yeah. up the terrain piece, right? Like and then they can't use it again, right? Yeah. Because yeah, actually, there's a there's a, one of the new terrain rules in Skirmish is it's its version of deadly terrain. Mm. Uh, I think it's designed to be less potentially game changing than because deadly terrain in regular AOS is if you move across a piece of terrain, you roll a dice on a one, you die. Mm. Whatever you are, doesn't matter if you're Archeon, you you're dead now. Mm. Um, the way that works in skirmish is it's called like collapsing or something. And so if you roll a one when I only running or charging, so you can move across something as long as you're careful. Mm-hmm. If you run or charge across it, you roll a dice and on a one, the running and charging unit dies and the terrain piece is removed because it's collapsed. Yeah. Which actually I think 
That'd be a good uh, solution. I think. I think that'd be a good solution to herald it because yeah. it means that it almost means that every piece of terrain is potentially ammo. Yeah, it's really interesting. You could use it to remove cover. Like if uh, people are hiding from your sh- shooters, you can yeah. hawk at a thing to remove it. It's, it's interesting you do that. And then rather than because I think that's the thing where it's like I've, we've definitely had games where you've like honked at the same hill twice because I haven't been able to get far enough yeah, away many, from it as many times as possible. Yeah, I mean. and that's and that's you know potentially numbers balanced, but in terms of the mental image of what he's doing, mm-hmm. it's like oh that building exploded again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like just damn the explosion exploded. Yeah, like. He's an interesting character. I quite like, I, obviously I would like him. I'm extremely fond of him in principle. <laughs> I love the model for him as well. It's so silly. He's also, his spectacular appearance in our Silver Tower campaign was the other Yeah, he got vomited out of a gargoyle. Yeah. And joined our party for a bit. He was useless. He was useless. <laughs> There's no train to blast if you're inside the train. No. Indeed. Yeah, man. That's deep. I know. As deep as they get. You can't so honk at the building you're in. It's unwise to do. Yeah. To do so. That was skirmish. We skirmish. had fun with it. We need to play some more of it. Yeah, it's good. I'm looking forward to playing more of it with lots of different warbands. I'm going to build a Sylvaneth, Death Sylvaneth. Yeah, and I'm going to do corn mm. stuff, I think. Excellent. And I'm going to run away from buildings. I'm going to run at you, basically. No more magic Around buildings. Just running at things. That's the corn way. Yeah. Look out for the blood tornadoes. What we should do before we wrap up is some questions mm. before we finish up this lengthy, lengthy pod. Yeah, lots to talk about. Uh, our first question comes from, already mentioned this episode, uh, friend Rich McCormick. Uh, hi, Rich. Hello, Rich. He's in Japan now. Paints lovely, lovely Dark Angels. Excellent tanks. Excellent tanks. Rich writes, Hi, Drop Podcasters. So he did there. That's the PC gamer pun spirit alive and well. Am I the first person to make the Drop Pod joke? (laughs) Inform your listeners if so. Rich is also extremely competitive and (laughs) likes to yield the glory for anything. Anything. Rich has beaten all of you to this pun. So, uh, and let's not not make Rich too smug about that (laughs) because he doesn't doesn't need the help. Um, My question is, which is the worst Space Marine chapter? Ooh, and why? I was thinking of the original 20, but bonus round for later years free-for-all bullshit too. <laughs> I've oscillated wildly over the years, growing up hating the Blood Angels and then finding the Space Wolves too cheesy before mm. settling on boring, boring Ultramarines. But even I kind of like them now? <laughs> question mark? Yeah, podcast I got to, voice? I got to the same place with them, yeah. actually. Best, obviously, are the stupid, sexy Emperor's children. Oh, I love them. Or the Dark Angels. Or the OG, grumpy Iron Warriors. Or the love rich so hmm so i'm gonna say like my my initial bid for this and i appreciate there's gonna be like no right answer because is i actually really don't like the iron warriors oh yeah no hang on not iron Warriors. i really don't like the iron hands and the and the reason is for Mm. the exact thing that just happened a it's too much like iron warriors yes can you off the top of your head remember what the difference between them is no idea right yeah um that's that's problem one. Yeah, Iron problem. Warriors are like the kind of engineering hazard stripesy chaos space oh, location okay. now, yeah, right? Yeah. Um Iron Hands genuine fuck knows, right? Yeah. I know it's the, the, the obvious the obvious answer is to pick one of the twenty that no one ever thinks about. But the bigger problem with them is their Primarch. Because we had the conversation yesterday, but yeah. it, it reminds me how much this annoys me, right? <laughs> There's a lot of dumb fucking names in Warhammer, right? And particularly among the Primarchs, right? You know, everyone likes Dark Angels, but I won't buy for a second that their Primarch is called the Lion. His name is Lionel. And they, yeah, they can say it's Lion, like apostrophe L, Johnson. But his name so is Lionel Johnson. Johnson. That is his name. His name is Lionel Johnson. Respect it. Respect a bit like name. the Ultramarine's Primarch is called Robert Gilliman. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like there's a, you know, and a lot, there's a lot of on the nose naming, Sanguinius for the Blood Angels, but they're kind of themed around that, right? Um, And then there's, you know, you know, you made the point yesterday that Angron for the angriest Primarch, it's, it's dumb. 
Yeah, he's cool though, but actually. The Primarch of the Iron Hands is, and I fucking hate this, Ferris Manus. <laughs> which is the... There's a lot of these decisions were made in the 80s that we mm. subsequently regret, right? Mm. But his, like, none of the other Primarchs have the same name as their chapter, but in pretend Latin. <laughs> mm. Like, the Primarch of the Ultramarines is not Ultras Marinus. The Primarch of the Blood Angels is literally Sanguinius, but it's, it could be more on the nose than it is, yeah. right? Like, mm. Ferris Manus, Iron Hand. Ah, it's Mr. terrible. Mr. Metal Hand. Yeah. Um, like, if Lehman Russ was called Al, like Astra Loopy, that would be as dumb. Lemon Russ is quite bad as well. Lemon it? Russ, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, at least it's a name. Like, you know. I would pick Space Wolves. Mm. I, I think they're terrible. <laughs> um, I think they're kind of weird. One with nature, I've tamed uh, a 20 foot tall wolf thing is <laughs> really weird and kind of out of fiction. Uh, like, Space Marines embody a lot of different kind of spirits and approaches to war. But here's a wolf I found <laughs> is not like an amazingly. Uh, the, 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 there are other factions. The implication that they're not actually wolves, they're hyper mutated space wolves. Yeah. Yeah, that's super dumb. <laughs> a lot of them, it's just super, super dumb. Uh, and there are other factions that do the bloodlust thing better than the space wolves. Uh, who have cooler armor with better colors. It's like, uh, I had to, had to paint up some Space Wolves. 30k Space Wolves, admittedly, but fucking tedious, really. Like, uh, doing the battle damage and stuff on them was good, but I really couldn't engage with their slightly ridiculous fantasy, even though the Burning of Prospero is a really interesting scenario and the Space Wolves are a perfect fit for it. It's the best thing that's ever happened to the Space Wolves, that, that story. Like, anything else yeah. they've been involved with has never been about. They need a more exciting chapter, The Thousand Suns, to make them interesting. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose, actually, like, because they're so beloved, but, like, so they are Viking werewolves. That's the whole deal, the right. Space Wolves, right? Yeah. They're Viking werewolves. They've grown up on this incredibly cold planet yeah. where almost no one survives. They're, they're, they're almost kind of, they're, their spirits are honed by this incredibly harsh environment and, you know, they're... They're hardened spirits. Yeah. That are boring. But like, guess who, you know, but guess who else is super hard and from a nice planet? Rogel Dawn. Yeah. Um, who is, an, you know what his people are called? This is another bit of dumb naming. They grew up in, it's an ice-based community mm. from Inwit. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. He's a space Eskimo. Yeah. Space Eskimo. That's what you see that. I can buy into that. Yeah. So. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of dumb things and there's maybe a, a certain point where you go like, is this silly? Hmm. Is, is this no, silly? I mean, but like, it is, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the Blood Angels also suffer for a similar reason because they're vampires for some yeah, reason. Yeah. And there's like a, you know, there's a, there's a level of, does, does it need an extra level of genre fiction on top of the genre <laughs> fiction it already is? Mm. And that's my problem with Space Wolves, I think, as well as like, does, do, do they need to be werewolves? Like, cause they can make all, they can call it the Canis Helix and the Wolfen. <laughs> but what you're talking about is lycanthropy mm. and werewolves. Yeah. The, the way that the, Blood Angels thing expresses itself on the tabletop is that instead of cool looking red guys in armor, you have guys in cool looking black armor who are going to die of this terrible bloodthirst by the end of the battle. Like there's a cool, 
sense of drama to that that yeah. this is their last battle no matter what happens they get executed after this because the the blood thirst has taken them and that's it uh, and um that when you look at a blood angel force you're like that there's a story there that's happened you know those, those units are already fated to die that's cool um when you look at a space wars army it's like there's a big wolf that just looks completely out of place on the tabletop yeah. there's a man with loads of hair because he's almost like a semi-wolf and that looks really really strange in a space marine armor and it just doesn't really work and uh, yeah and it's the worst successes of like games workshop adjective <laughs> stuff right like you know wolf wolfishly on the wolf wolf <laughs> right like everything is a wolf thing mm. right i mean some cast have that problem a little bit with storm things and lightning things and mm. thunder things but like yeah they really suffer for it so maybe i'm with you on space wolves actually yeah can't think. it's because they're so prominent and obviously quite popular still a ferris manus right yeah, i mean that is obviously some sort of crime yeah <laughs> It's interesting, like, because it is this beautiful fiction built out of individually, possibly staggeringly dumb parts. Mm. And I say that with love. I like, yes, genuinely like love yeah. the setting. Like, you can read the Horus Heresy books and never question for a second, why the fuck is Horus called Horus? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you totally accept it when you read yeah. it. And it, it, like, the, uh, the fiction's great. I love it. Uh, but not necessarily for the Space Wolves. No. Hmm. Next question comes from Ross, who writes, A miniature howdy. Firstly, I wanted to throw a shout out to Wowbagger from Discord on the pod, who was kind enough to send me some old Skaven models to help me get back into the hobby. That is just, uh, that is just pushing, really, I think. I mean, it's a lovely thing to do, but at the same time, it's like, you know, bringing someone else into the fold. Painting has been a blast when I've had time to do it. And so thanks to him for the models and you two for stoking the fires of Warhammer deep within my soul. Uh, we, are, we too are culpable. The fires of Warhammer. It must be must be corn must be literally on fire while i'm here i should probably ask a question i fondly remember playing mordheim as a teenager with the persistent elements such as named characters injuries and loot being a particular draw i know you often talk in the narrative threads of your games in aos but would you like to see some mechanics to allow persistence between games i know most people are likely to end up playing the same people multiple times which in effect forms small campaigns perhaps a unit that ended a game routed as a negative modifier in the next game when it attempts a morale check for example can you think of any other effects you'd like to carry over between game games thanks for answering everybody uh Taymeister. so i actually obviously skirmish has this to mm. some extent in that you gain power but death and injuries and things don't matter that's right um i thought it would be interesting because actually we haven't used it yet but you and i did brainstorm a persistence for heroes and mounts yeah idea that i'd still like to kind of yeah there's some good stuff there right? yeah i mean you can just you can house rule this stuff like uh if a dracoth has lost its rider before it might have a certain animosity towards certain things it might just charge at things outside of its general's control like almost like scatter dice yeah and obviously this stuff is mad and you'd never do it in like a match play environment but you can certainly put these things in there are um games workshop have path to glory campaigns which are sort of campaigns for armies mm -hmm. where you chain together a series of battle plans and you change the unit makeup of the armies based on what's happened uh, it's nowhere near as involved and there aren't kind of wounding mechanics and for me wounding mechanics are really really characterful and some of Mordheim's best stuff is the fact that your guy's lost a leg so it's now got a peg leg and he's got minus one movement and you can reflect that on the model as well it's just that that stuff's really characterful and i'd like to see that like the, the kind of the agony and scarring of uh these insane conflicts being reflected in what the units yeah. how the units behave and what they can do i think the idea we had for this is obviously a top level thing but like the idea was to have a sort of um like a almost like a buyback system for heroes that die in combat including stormcast who do get reforged yeah Where, um a system i'd like to see would be something like um if a hero dies in a battle you can have them back in two battles time with no penalty if you want them back in the next battle you have to roll on like a 
weaknesses table mm. functionally represents either the trauma of being reforged or the trauma of being pulled back out of the realm of chaos, whatever is appropriate to the yeah. particular character. Um, but that with some interesting qualifications, like they lose that penalty mid game, potentially mm. if they kill another hero, something like that. Yeah. Um, and the reason we thought about that, the reason I was thinking about this and when we talked about this in the pub was I lose all of our games as we've established. And so I kind of wanted a reason to go like gunning for heroes towards the end of a game to try yeah, and weaken yeah. you for the next game, that mm, kind of thing. That's a good idea. Yeah. Just give you an extra kind of like, so subjective, like I'm going to lose. Hmm. How do I cause enough damage that the next battle is easier? Yeah. It's what happened when, uh, your chaos lord, um, went up to my general and used all of yours each dice to kill him. To kill him. And it was like, well, it feels like there could be some cool repercussions for that in future battles, given that we are on this campaign. Like, yeah. Track. I kind of want you to have like, well, at the time, this was before the Stormcast book came out and they established that the Dracoths also get reforged. Yeah. So we thought like, if he's, if he's died, he gets a new Dracoth and like maybe his penalty is that he's, he has a, a Dracoth, a shit Dracoth. Yeah. That's game. Bit, like an unblooded Dracoth. Yeah. Unblooded be... is what we came up with. Yeah. Uh, that he could be. Uh, I can't remember how we decided. We it was something like it was something like maybe a penalty to charge rolls or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So like he's actually a little bit like skittish and like balk at, yeah. at the you know true war. Like or if you do a run, you have to roll two dice and take the lowest, something like that. Yeah, it's something. And then once he's done it for that battle, he's over it and he's kind of he's he's blooded. He's kind of ready. And, and yeah, he's battle experienced and he's fine again. Uh, so that, that kind of stuff. You can just I, I reckon that people house rule it themselves. I think it, yeah, that's better. Rather relying on GW to come up with all this stuff. I think the way this is all going to shake down, and actually the thing we didn't talk about at all, but neither well, is that um, Horus Heresy is using seventh edition rules. Mm. So Horus Heresy is sticking with the previous version of Warhammer, which is interesting. I yeah. don't know too much about it. Like I'm super into that stuff from a um, lore and painting and hobby point of view. I don't know if I'll ever play. I just love the love yeah. the stuff. But like it feels like AOS is shaking down as the um, mega customizable one where house rules yeah. and stuff makes sense. New 40k feels like it'll be somewhere in the middle, like a kind of balanced uh, mixture of your own creativity, but pretty robust and wide ranging rules. Mm. And then um, Horus Heresy will be the historical war game where you respect the setting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so therefore these uh, house ruling this stuff makes if you want a house rule in progression that makes sense in AOS I think yeah it's very easy it's only having so few rules means it's much easier to come up with just little rules modifications that don't have terrible terrible knock-on effects yeah we should totally try and maybe write up those persistence rules though, cause yeah we should playtest them and then any that work we can put on the TGA forums or something yeah uh, next question comes from uh, Duncan it's more of a statement but it's a good statement by someone who knows what he's talking about mm. Um, dear Minotaurs and Marines, when talking about painting, when talking about his painting method, um, for his Thousand Suns, Chris mentioned that part of what he was hoping to achieve with using metallics was that they would naturally create light and shadow on the mini. This technique's problem is that while it allows you to create highlights that are 100% perfect for a two inch tall model Terminator, if you look at the exact same cast and blew it up to the size of a real Terminator in the exact same lighting conditions and took a photograph, they would look quite different. The heart of a good miniature painting is tricking the eye. You could argue that one of the reasons non-metallic, non-metallic metallics can actually in some circumstances look better than true metallics is that they allow the painter to mimic the way a material would behave on a larger scale. Textures in video games can be a great place to look for examples of how to create effects because just with miniatures they can't rely on ambient lighting correctly in- interacting with materials and so have to fake it. My current go-to inspiration is Heroes of the Storm since its visuals hit just the right spot for miniatures because of its level of stylization, relatively simple lighting system and camera viewing angles and distance. Um, which I think is a really good point. Like, um, He's completely right in that like, mm. you know, um, I think I said as an offhand comment that doing metallics on on the body of all of my marines does create some natural lighting effects. Um, 
I would have agreed with him at the time that it's not a substitute for full highlighting. Yeah. But actually, it's interesting that with the Horus Heresy models, generally, they tend to go for metallics, like actual metallics, even though that isn't realistic at yeah, scale, simply because it's, I think they pay more attention to like, like the right materials, quote unquote. Mm. Whereas actually, if you look at the GW painted versions of the same models, they do GW style matte paints highlighted, yeah. which mm. is interesting. Just yeah. From yeah. a kind of stylistic point of view. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's a good point. Yeah, it's a really good point. Really, really good. And that, is that next level of painting as well, like that you're looking at when you're looking at the Golden Demons, the, the stuff that those artists really bear in mind? Um, his question is about uh, potentially doing meetups for this pod. Um, I, I think he sent the question a little while ago, and, and pre Warhammer Fest, obviously mm. we didn't do that. <laughs> um, I think more broadly, like I don't know, I'll speak for both of us, but like I think you know, Miniature Month is still growing. Uh, I don't know if we're necessarily at the point to do anything like that yet. Yeah, we've got no idea how many people listen to this trouble. So yeah. it's like you could, we could go to a pub, no idea how many people would. It is, it is it. far more likely that we would do something for the Crate and Crowbar broadly. Yeah. And, and do Mini Smartly is like a part of that. Yeah, it's good, then, good then, But then we would do something dedicated for this. But I mean, there's no, you know, if there's events coming up and we we're there, there, then A, it's always fun to go to the pub and B, people should just say hi anyway. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Uh, next question comes from Fienia from Discord, who writes, uh, Walloping Howdy does D3 mortal wounds to the listener. Ouch. Um, um, my question is, have you ever been interested to any degree in historical wargaming? As a younger man, I was only ever interested in fan- fantastical settings, but my latest deep plunge into the world of wargaming has involved quite a lot of bolt action, one of the more popular historical wargames. I wonder if a wargamer is destined to become interested in historicals as he, he or she grows older eventually ending up as a 65 year old with an exact replica of the battle of waterloo <laughs> in their basement thanks fiania slash pete it's a good question um maybe your slide towards the horus heresy is a reflection of, of this it's the kind of history <laughs> it is space history yeah but made is, up space history so it's a it might be a gateway drug to to more realistic uh battlefields i don't i think to some extent i like putting my own stamp on things too much mm. and also i I think I think I find the fantasy element helps insulate me from the grimmer connotations of playing battle games. Mm. Like I like that it's is still even when it's presented with grim dark verisimilitude or seriousness, it is still a fantasy. Right. Um Not to say that I'm you know, I don't find, you know, traditional war games off putting necessarily, but I find them I think creatively limiting and um I don't know. I, I guess it just doesn't appeal to me yet. Like, I, I'm fascinated by ancient warfare and I find the idea of it interesting, but I like the idea of it in a video game where my investment is a bit lower. Like, right. I can just dive into a total war or something and mm. just play Rome for a bit to experience that. Um, I think if I was going to really spend the time, like, creating these little people and painting them, I'd want them to be mine more substantially than they can be. Yeah. But maybe that will change. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, the historical war game settings, particularly in, like, World War One, World War Two, are really good, uh, especially in like town battles and things that's a really good fit for board for wargaming on like a four by four board or a six by four board where you can create yeah a combat space that really match the the type of combat space that ha- happened and then um, there are just really fascinating tactical asymmetrical tactical um contrast between the forces that fought and for example for the second world war yeah that no, you're right would yeah. be like really engaging to play but um, it's a really good point chris that you like if you're gonna paint a sherman from a particular you know uh part of the war is going to have to look like that and it's going to have to have 
the correct insignia on it and it's going to have to look like one you know what i mean i mean that said that might just be down to purely subjective taste because i've got a stack of like detailed star wars miniature replicas that i'm yet to assemble and paint mm. um which are exactly that i'm going to paint them correctly i'm not gonna put my own stamp on them yeah. i'm going to do a correct y-wing mm. it's i don't know like where i play x-wing every month there are always people playing bolt action or saga which is like a sort of Norman yeah. invasion era war game i think maybe the thing i find intimidating is they're all grown-ups like there's always like people about my age, maybe slightly older and younger playing X-Wing and then people about my age playing Warhammer and then like nice gentlemen in their forties and fifties playing bolt action and saga. Yeah. yeah. And maybe I just don't think I'm there yet. Maybe I'm hanging out with the, the cool kids. I, I could the see children playing with the spaceships. I could see myself getting into it really, especially because a lot of that stuff's really cover oriented and that's yeah. like not a system that really exists. It, the cover exists in a slightly awkward way in, um, both mm. 40k and AOS, whereas actual kind of hitting a wall, overlooking a street, and then rolling for how those guns might actually work, I can see the appeal of it. For Definitely, sure. yeah, yeah, I can totally see the appeal. I just not yet. Mm. Not Maybe yet. for like for the era of like more colourful army uh, bearings, like mm. more colourful. I think armor. I think one side of it for me is though is that like. I do love a good model mm. and I mean where I play a lot of stuff in, in Bristol like the huge scene for historical wargaming and a huge number of models in stock because it tend to be from smaller manufacturers with fewer resources <laughs> I do find that the models are often mm. like a lot worse than what GW does yeah um, and so that's the other side of it is like you know no one's making sort of World War 2 models at the level of kind of detail and mm. fidelity and stuff that GW make yeah, magic space people yeah hmm Hmm, but interesting, an interesting point. Like, I don't mean to dismiss it out of hand because inevitably we'll be dialing in a year from now and I'll be <laughs> talking about painting correct, you know. Look at my tiny peaceful red shirts. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Next question comes from Alex, who writes, Hello, miniature men. I mean, that really applies to me, but not Tom. Um, I used to be quite into the Warhammer-like war machine, buying a whole army, attending events, etc., etc., etc. I enjoyed the social aspect of the game and listening to your podcast, I've been taken with how you approach games to tell stories and make the games interesting. The aspect which turned me off playing War Machine and eventually made me stop playing altogether was how competitive the scene was. It wasn't about making friends or telling stories through play or even having a good sign. The scene in Ireland is totally about crushing your enemy. The final straw for me was being invited to a chat room with a group of players. I was just about to introduce myself when they started complaining about how I played and how stupid I was to make the moves I did at a recent event. Overall, I just found the whole experience very unpleasant and really turned me off tabletop miniature games. But everything I found about the retooling of 40k is drawing me back in and now I'm in London I'm curious about starting it up again. Do you have any recommendations on how to have a nice time playing tabletop games without the one-upmanship and alpha nerdery that I found in my previous experience? Thanks for reading, Alex. Hmm. This is a consistent problem, like this culture gap between competitive play and not just happy hobbyist play. Um, And I think you just almost like trial and error. Well, first of all, get into our Discord community and chat to our lovely uh, people who are really nice wargamers in our community. Like, It's a really nice way to get into a, a positive community. Um, otherwise, I guess maybe it's just visiting stores and attending clubs and seeing what the vibe's like until you find a group of people who share that mentality. Yeah, I think trying a few clubs is a thing. Like, I am, I'm still surprised by, like, how variable wargaming community attitudes can be. Because mm-hmm. I've always found X-Wing to be pretty lovely across the board. Not universally, but overwhelmingly, like I've said before. Um, I found AOS to be on the whole lovely. Um, but wherever my AOS experiences overlap with 40k, I found that to be quite negative, which mm-hmm. is not to say anything about the 40k community because it's a big, big community. Just that, that's been the pattern for me, mm-hmm. like, um, for whatever reason. And there are things about the sort of wargamer aptitude, like alpha nerdery is a good way to put it, 
um but also things like the sense of humor and things the kind of language that gets used I've, that i found extremely off-putting right. sometimes yeah and don't get around that because i love this hobby and it even hit me yesterday at warhammer fest just overhearing conversations and cues and things and feeling both like profoundly excited and inspired about the hobby and loving that side of it but also feeling put off by some of the attitudes expressed um that you hear expressed and so on and that's just a thing i feel the same way with video games like mm. you know i worked in video games for long enough yeah it was exposed enough for those comment threads to not feel a profound connection to everybody who shares my hobby yeah and i think inevitably you won't but like with video games i think the key is finding people who play the game like you do and want to play the game like you do um and maybe in london that's a bit easier to achieve like i imagine there's going to be clubs that suit you and clubs that don't yeah um and actually one thing i've found recently is more and more people like our age are getting back into this mm. like warhammer is in a boom period as i think tom bottom put it yesterday when we were talking to him yeah and so it feels like there are multiple levels of engagement with it but there are a bunch of people at our, our position of like kind of relatively relaxed hobbyist who plays a bit yeah you know, who just it's like a small to... group of friends who pull other friends into it i think that's a probably a very large part of the audience like yeah. uh, rather than the super hardcore uh competitive gamers side of it uh i think it's a lot of it is people in their garages inviting friends over and having a few beers and doing it um and if you can find some friends like that that's that's the the best <laughs> yeah because you can it's, you bounce your ideas off each other it's really creative it's good yeah and it'll be interesting to see how things shake out because I, I i i imagine you thought okay it's gonna be pretty big because mm. it's hitting at the right time yeah i think it's the right game yeah and so i think that'll expand the hobby quite a lot yeah and there will exciting. always be as with any gatekeepery nerd community there will always be people who've been there the longest and who are the loudest and the most gatekeepery about things. Mm. Um, that is not a Games Workshop problem. That is a geek culture problem. Right. Um, but uh, beyond a certain point, I think when you get a, enough of a weight of enthusiastic new people, those people do ultimately get drowned out. Mm. So hopefully it'll, it'll quite be a, quite a positive year. But yeah, the safest way in the short term is to find friends who are into it as well. Yeah. So our final question is going to be a super quick one because uh, it's from John who very, um, I guess, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, presciently writes, in your last pod, you had a question about a cheap way to play with just a few heroes in AOS or 40k, which we now obviously have mm. through Skirmish. Uh, the thing I think you missed was to buy one of the Silver Tower hero packs. One has four heroes from different factions, the other five and can be got for sub £30. Free rules online and the fact that they're more varied than Gore Chosen makes this a recommendation from me thanks for the great pod john which is actually quite a cool idea if people want to pick up sort of boost pack of miscellaneous heroes yeah those models are great as well really yeah. lovely models uh, and also you get a flavor from we're talking about design language and stuff earlier but um because it, it cherry picks from so many different wildly different factions you get lots of different design flavors and lots of different ways of painting them um, yeah so painting an, an elf or painting a dwarden it's gonna be very different yeah very i suppose different. the downside of that actually in the light of the skirmish rules so it's actually a really good idea when it comes to like if you wanted to like split a box of heroes that you mates just to play one-off games yeah great the downside is it's actually pretty incompatible with skirmish yeah i think about it true because a heroes are vastly more expensive than anything else in the game yeah. so you're not going to have more than one of them b the only rule is that you're limited to constructing out of one grand alliance mm. and given that those boxes tend to come with like every grand alliance represented mm. means that you're functionally getting one model that you can use a skirmish yeah so uh <laughs> but yeah see i think it's a good i think it's a good point of view because actually people kind of forgot that they did that like these right. kind of functionally silver tower expansions but all they are are four hero models packed in for half the price that would normally be yeah and in open play it's totally fine to take those war scrolls and just kind of 
make them fight on a tabletop using the core rules. That'll yeah. totally work. Roll dice until somebody wins. Yeah. Usually Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll no, see. universally Tom. Well, maybe um, 40k will be your comeback. Yeah, I thought about that when I completely diced you in that first game. Yeah, it was totally unfair. Maybe this is it. It was like, yeah, maybe this is the one I'm good at. Maybe in the, four, in the 41st millennium, Just it's my me. time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. In the grim darkness of the far future, there's only me rolling completely bullshit dice. <laughs> right. And, and then you winning the one that was in any semblance fair. And it works well. Siege. Siege has good control of luck and change. Does he, though? Well, I don't know. He would claim that. <laughs> would claim that. Historically. Mm. Mm. That is all the questions we have and all of the long, long podcasts we've got time for. So much good stuff. Lots of good stuff. It was an exciting month. Next month's going to be exciting as well because we're going to be on the other side of all these releases. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll yeah. have a Primaris box. Maybe you will. You probably will. I'll you don't broke, think you will, but, but you I will. will. <laughs> um, if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode, you can do so by emailing us miniatures at com is the address for questions. Uh, you can follow both Crate and Crowbar on Twitter at Crate and Crowbar. And now you can follow Minis Monthly at Minis Monthly, which is an account that both Tom and I share uh, to post work in progress pictures of our miniatures, as you might expect. Woo. So uh, Minis Monthly is now on iTunes. We can work on Google Play sub- um, submission, but it's really helpful to us if you could leave a review or, or rate the, the show on iTunes. And equally, the, it's on YouTube as well, on the Create and Crowbar YouTube channel at YouTube forward slash Create and Crowbar and any kind of all of the liking and subscribing stuff people say at the end of episodes it's of stuff. Do. It all applies and it, it does is. all help. And particularly on iTunes, it does help make the podcast more visible. And mm. also just sharing it with people. If you yeah, like it, yeah, sharing cool. it with other people because we're trying to get the word out a little bit and it's a new community for us. So mm. it's kind of be nice to try and crack it. Um, this podcast particularly is supported by the Crate and Crowbar Patreon, um, which allows us, which has allowed us to spin out from our PC gaming focused main podcast into things like this podcast and also the Bloodborne playthrough that we're doing and the special guests that we're bringing on and the one-off podcasts we're doing. And we recently did one on Prey. Um, lots of stuff. We've had a very busy week, actually. If you'd like to find out more about that and how you can support the podcast, uh, that's at uh, patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. Otherwise, the only thing that remains is our own details. Uh, Tom, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at PCD Ludo, which is L-U-D-O. And I'm on Twitter at C Thurston, which is C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. And I have a miniatures Instagram, um, which is exit warp, which is like exiting and also warping. Mm. Like where you go if you, if you do bad. If you've done the wrong thing in yeah, Warhammer 40,000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or it, like the planet of the sorceress, sometimes you exit warp. <laughs> ah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to go away forever now. <laughs> Until next month. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>